Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good afternoon. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. And today we are sitting down with Joyce of Buzzagogo, which is an all-natural nasal swab that supports a healthy and balanced nasal biome. We hear so much about the gut microbiome and how we should... Um, optimize our balancing of that and keeping it healthy and clean but no one's really talking about the nostrils so i'm excited to learn about this um, new approach to our wellness joyce is a homeschooling mother an entrepreneur a honey enthusiast and so much more as we will get into today so joyce welcome to the show thank you liz thank you joey for having me i'm really excited to be here and talk about all of these things that you guys are so passionate about yes we share the we share passions on many points Mm -hmm. I mean, even just saying nasal biome kind of gets me hyped because that's it. Just it just sounds fancy. I know I added a new you know term to my vocabulary that I never <laughs> knew I needed, and it makes so much sense, especially given the last two years. Like so much goes on, so we'll get into. I that. I love it. I love it. Well, Joyce, thank you again for being here, and let's let's jump right into this thing. Let's start from the beginning. Let us uh, take us back to where Joyce grew up. Okay. Well, I am a New England girl. I grew up in rural Maine. Uh, I'm actually 50 years old as of last week, so I am, yeah, I'm a gen, I'm a gen Xer from Maine, and Mm -hmm. I grew up in what you might say um, is poverty, what would probably be considered poverty now, and I grew up in the country where not all the roads were paved, and uh, Mm. my grandmother owned a little country store there near us. It had been started during the Depression as sort of a place where people could get their supplies because going into town was an ordeal you know it's like five miles down the road so you got to have someplace local to get your things so I grew up in the country of Maine at my grandmother's uh store just living like a little barefooted kid running around in the grass gardening and canning and doing all that wow that's incredible what a beautiful way to grow up your grandmother's store what what, what kind of things was she selling well it was like this little white building and it had an old schlitz sign outside which you may or may not know what that is it's like a beer from the 70s oh my god i hope some people in my age are listening so they'll laugh they'll (laughs) laugh at that and uh, there was also a big moxie sign do you know what that is no, you're 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 calling us out. Well, Moxie is this disgusting old Maine soda, and I'm going to send you a can of it because they still make it. It was oh I mean, yes, it was I literally mean. marketed as a medicine, or then they turned it into a soda. It's disgusting, but anyway, should we? So this little <laughs> white building, and in, you go inside of it, and there was a pot-bellied cast iron stove and a little counter with the with the old-fashioned cash register that you'd pull the handle, and it was very ornate and there was always on the pot-bellied stove a big pot with coils coming out of it. And I always thought she was making jam, but now I kind of question, like, maybe it wasn't always jam. But that's what she told me. <laughs> Might not have been jam with the coils. <laughs> yeah, because she sold a lot of canned goods and drinks and, and things. Mm, and they had old wooden clearly. coolers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Some clear liquids in jars, yeah. potentially, as well. It, it was yeah. where all the hunters <laughs> jam. Yeah. It's where all the hunters would come hang out all day, every day. And oh. there's always oh a, yeah, that's suspicious. There's always a deer hanging out front or something that's been killed to be weighed or tagged or whatever. So that was my childhood. So, so your grandmother started the business during the Depression. Yeah, she did. She st- Well, she was post-Depression um, in 19... Gosh. 
She had the store for a while, and then in 1950, she was widowed when my mother was three. And mm. so she had to make her own way, and she expanded into this, this store footprint, made it bigger, and took it over herself, and that was it. She was a businesswoman. She was the first entrepreneur wow, in my crazy. life, and the most lucrative thing you can do in rural Maine is sell booze. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we just came out and say it. Some people are going to be like, what are they talking about? That's amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. Right on. So you're, you're working at the store. And so what did, what did uh, school look like back then? Were you going to school? It was very Stranger Things, very 1980s, spectacular. Um, I went <laughs> to this small school district in um, the town of Sanford, Maine. I was there from K through 12. And it was very much traditional public school, but on a much smaller scale than what we see now. Like my whole graduating class was like 150 people. Maybe that's not super oh, tiny, wow. but um, yeah. So that was my upbringing. It was, our town was like a, back then, like a postcard type of town. It was a mill town, you know, so it's an mm. industrial town with all these old mills, some still functioning, some not. A lot of French Canadian mm. influence. Um, and, uh, yeah, school was fantastic. My grandmother was actually a school teacher before she ran the store and her school room still stands. It's a one room school room with all the benches still in place over in the forest in North Berwick. It's still there. She was a school teacher originally. Is it functioning at all? No, I think it's a historic landmark. Like the, it's not well taken care of, but nobody's knocked it down yet. Oh, wow. One of my secret dreams in life is to, like, open up a one-room school room. Like, almost like homeschool co-op vibes, but not really. Mm -hmm. Because I love that. I love just having kids of all ages in one class, still having a teacher. I don't know. There's something about that. that like, I watch a lot of Anna Green Gables or um, Anne with an E. That just depicts it in the most desirable way. So that's cool that she owned that. I want to, yeah, I wish I could go back in time and meet her because she sounds like my kind of woman. Oh, yeah. So, so your your grandmother was was a, it sounds like a very pivotal, you know, figure in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you were you and your family, you, your parents. You, you, did you have siblings? Um, did you have your parents working? Well, we lived just two doors down from my Grammy, and my parents divorced when I was younger because so my father had a drinking problem. Everybody had a drinking okay. problem. Um, but they divorced mm. when I was six, and my brother was nine. I have an older brother named James. And uh, we just stayed there. We lived on a, a little um, farm three doors down called the, called the Gray Birch Farm. And um, so we just run back and forth between the properties and had a garden at one and the store at the other. And, you know, speaking of the one-room schoolhouse, my grandmother hated that I was in the public school system that was, in her opinion, enormous and ridiculous. And people were running amok, quote-unquote. And her <laughs> so whenever I would get sick or whatever, she really enjoyed when she would keep me home and I would stay in the store mm-hmm. with her and help ring the register. And that's where I learned math. That's where I learned how to make change. That's where I learned how to can yeah. eggs and pickles and pig's feet and all that nonsense that we were feeding the hunters. And um, so she really thought that I learned more at her in her kitchen and in the store than I did up at the crazy you know, crazy school system of Sanford that had grown mm. so big she could not even, you know, really deal with it. So, yeah, yeah that, that one-room That's... schoolhouse mentality stayed with me all my life. It's one of the primary reasons I then became a homeschooler. Mm. Yeah, there's something magical about that. I, I, my graduating class was like 500, so to think of one that's even smaller is kind of wild. But, um, yeah, I, I just... 
I think that that's cool. So I similarly, I, when I was growing up, we had a produce market on the corner of you know our street, and as a, as a, at a young age, we didn't have the you know the, the, the big you know lever cast register. We had a box, a Tupperware box, nice. and and we had you know you know a couple rolls of quarters, you know dimes, nickels, pennies, and you know we'd put like fifty singles you know, five fives and, and, you know, two tens in the box and I would sell produce and I had a little scale and I had to use a calculator to figure out, Hey, what is 3.72 pounds of tomatoes at a dollar 99 a pound? And, uh, then they would pay me, make change. And I think, I think your grand, she might have, she might have an argument there because mm-hmm. I learned, I learned a lot. And people are always like, wow, how can you do math so well all the time? Yeah. Are you good at math today, Joyce? I'm curious. I am horrible at math, but not at, at <laughs> well, not at money though. Like if you want me to do, okay. if it comes to baking and figuring out the sale price on a sweater I want or figuring out a tip, I'm the fastest oh, one in the it. room when it comes yeah, to money yeah, and yeah. everyday life math. But if you ask me to do anything mm. else more complex, forget it. Nope. You know what though? That's kind of valid because like... At the, I'm bad at all math and it really stresses me out because I did the more public school, you know, traditional route. And even at dinner, I'm like calculating the tip on my phone and Joey's like, it's $20. (laughs) What are you doing? And the farm stand approach to teaching math might be, you know, a new thing. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Run the cash register, man. You, you, it's do or die and you're under the gun. If you mess up and this, you know, adult, Tells you you're wrong. Hey, this isn't right change. My, you're st- I mean, it happened too. It happened. And my stomach would just fall out of my feet. And I was like, <laughs> I am, I feel like, I, yeah, I'd be a puddle on the ground. So anyways, so schooling, you were running, you know, the cash, cash register. You were running running around from, from house to house. Sounds like you and your, your grandmother and your family, you all kind of lived in, in, in a similar area. That sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, what did uh, what did family dinners look like for you growing up? Well, it was mostly what could be put in a crock pot because she was a busy entrepreneur and the store would be Mm. open till sometimes seven or nine at night. So Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of New England food or poverty, Maine food, a lot of it was, you know, baked beans and corned beef and boiled dinner and stuff like that. You know, pot roast in a bag, that kind of things that Mm -hmm. could be thrown in the oven and the potatoes and onions and carrots and everything from the garden is right there, you know? So... That's how I grew up. I mean, there was just a, I think over at our house when my mom got divorced, um, she's never going to hear this. Okay. So she was a single mom who's broke. And even though I would, I would go to my Grammys to eat the good food, but at our house, there was literally a lot of hot dogs and spam, believe it or not. Mm. A lot of canned goods, you know, there were, I mean, if we got a bag of fresh oranges, we fight over that. Like that was so rare, you know, mm. there, it, the fresh fruit we got had to be from the orchard or from something like blueberries, something local that we've gotten. There was blueberry fields under the power lines and we would go pick them. But no, a lot of it was wow. convenience, fast food. Boy, when Mac and cheese was invented, oof, you know, when the craft box came out, that was a big deal. You know, that kind of food. Um, so I ate healthier down at Grammy's house. And of course, the seasonality of Maine, your garden, my Grammy canned. So we would get, you know, blueberries and jams and things like that throughout the winter and beets, huge beets are huge and potatoes, but a lot of greens, green beans, snap peas, that sort of thing. 
fresh tomatoes, you know, after September. It's few and far between, and nobody's driving into town for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because we do these interviews, and almost everyone has the same story as far as the generations go for food. It seems like everyone's grandparents were, were like that generation just close enough to the farm, maybe, or the garden, yeah. or the preservation method, or whatever might have been before the crazy outbursts of convenience in like the 50s and 60s. And then it's like the parents somehow divert from maybe the traditions that they were taught and they they go into this whole new thing and then us kids us offspring of that we're like wait a minute what do we do here and it totally depends on who had more influence in your life when it came to food for you it sounds like your grandmother gave painted a beautiful picture even though it might have been simple dinners gosh i love a good like garden potato carrot and and chuck roast and then I would take that over a box of Kraft mac and cheese any day. Like, there's no question. Yep. You know? I, it's, it, it's so fascinating because you're right. Every time we have these discussions, and, and believe it or not, we've had, we've had uh, boomers on the podcast. So, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, All generations. Yeah, we just interviewed people that, what our so, age? So, yeah. Gen and X. so. Gen X. You're Gen Still X. Cool. So that's what I mean. Right. You, so all, we're mixing you all You are of them. the cool, yeah. It's Gen X the cool one? They are oh, the cool okay. one. Cool. I mean. So it goes boomers, Gen X, millennial, then Gen Z. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. So oh, I, have, I have a theory. And my theory is, is that folks that lived through the Depression mm-hmm. were forced into a scenario where they had to figure it out in a way that, that, ha- that avoided convenience. Mm-hmm. Because eating and, and sustaining yourself, was it became a priority. Mm-hmm. And when, when the depression started to ease up and these companies started thriving and putting out more, there was more marketing, there was more influence, there was more, and, and the priorities shifted a little bit. And so I think, and I know a number of people that, you know, so-and-so lived through the depression and it was always like, well, what'd you eat? Well, of course we ate stuff we could get out of the garden and, and then we hunted or we, you know, we, we, we would put stuff in the freezer and anytime we could make ends meet, we were pickling, we were fermenting, we were... And a lot of these practices came out of a, a necessity for nourishment. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of became the normal standard of living mm-hmm. for these folks, right? That this is how we do it. And you know, there's also, I think, some money-saving practices there. But nowadays, when we tell people, hey, just, you know, let's, let's eat well. Let's, let's you know, invest our time and effort into better food people will tell us well i just don't have money for that yeah i can't afford it and it's like whoa whoa whoa! what do you mean you can't afford it this is the affordability pathway and it's a funny thing because if you look back when the in the the depression people made it work and they were eating you know and you know maybe maybe there was somebody that grew up in the depression and they were like yeah i ate junk i'm like okay but for the most part i hear people telling me that they you know, we had we were eating sauerkraut and we were pickling eggs and we were and a lot of that has to do with with longevity right we wanted mm-hmm. to keep that food around longer but they were eating pig's feet back then and boiling you know ham hocks because they they wanted the nutrients out of it the and flavor. the flavor out of it but also we didn't want to waste anything mm-hmm. we couldn't afford no that. you don't we throw out the bacon grease the you do not throw out the bacon grease you right. know and in, in right. the depression were, i think they didn't have junk food I don't, I think it was, you know, survival of the fittest and and make do or do without kind of mentality. And, you know, when we, when we cleaned out my grandmother's house in the 
2000s, early 2000s, she had passed away in 98 and, and we went into the house. I found in a closet behind the drywall canned green beans. That's no. amazing. So why, why did she put them in the walls? So no one steal them. Right. So that sort of mentality, like we can't even fathom that. But and, and you've got to think every generation had its um, people trying to influence the market. You know the what are they? What yeah. are they? The the people that I'll think of the word later. But you know those people that go and influence Congress and the people that are hey, the thank you lobbyists, the lobbyists yeah. for the like that's the reason we had formula and breast milk became taboo. <laughs> lobbyists mm. have influenced every generation, and I think mm. the that generation, my grandmother's generation, um, maybe were exempt from that, and it's the last time mm. we may have seen that. Yeah, I agree. That's such an interesting yeah. like sociopath. Logical yeah, I wonder, question. I'd love to. I'd love to. I think that's something I want to even dive. I mean, studying the depression. Like, I mean, it was crazy. Anyways, sorry, off topic there a little bit, but no, I love that. Great topic. Um, so, so family dinners you were eating with with your grandmother. You, you mentioned a lot of pot roasts, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of canned uh, vegetables that likely were grown mm-hmm. uh, on the farms that you were that you either had or were near near. You exchange. And you exchange other other farms. Ex- yeah. Awesome. Mm, the bartering. Let's bring back bartering. I know it. And then, and then you were eating now. Now, at, at your mom's house, you said that sometimes you were eating some of the spams, some of the early mm-hmm. kind of adaptations to, to food. Which, um, I mean, no one that we've talked to yet has been exempt from the 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 convenient foods that came out in the eighties and nineties and and um, early even before early two thousands, yeah. even even before that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, did you have a favorite meal? Hot dogs. I can't tell you the amount of nitrates that I must have consumed as a child. If they put nitrates in them back then, it was probably just beaks and lips, maybe no nitrates. But, um, yeah, I just ate hot dogs like my life depended upon it. And then when they... Because you enjoyed it? Yes. It was so weird. I think it was just the convenience of it. And my mom Mm -hmm. was putting herself through school after her divorce. So she was going and getting her bachelor's and her master's so she could support us. And she became a teacher. And um, so we were latchkey kids till eight, nine at night, unless we were down at the community college with her running the hallways like crazy people. Mm. So hot dog is the quickest thing. We didn't have a microwave. It was the quickest Mm. thing I could boil up. I actually had a horrible kitchen accident because I was, I made myself hot dog. I got third degree burns all down my body from boiling water because I was making myself hot dogs one night when I was 10. Oh no. So, you know, I was an independent little creature and i lived on hot dogs i'm entirely made of hot dogs well you know what the whole preserved meat game and i don't know what year we're referencing right now but back in the day the beauty of those things was that they would incorporate you know the things that we weren't eating all the time so some of the odd bits and ends but also some of the organ meats and other things that actually had some good nutrient density so like a hot dog you know a hundred years ago or a, or a cured meat or a sausage of some kind would look way different from what we have today where it's sort of chemically fermented versus traditionally fermented. So I don't know if that gives you any peace or not, but I am, I'm in the middle of a salted and cured book that kind of talks about that stuff. I find nice. that so interesting. Well, the, the hot dogs that we ate, that we know. Oh, sorry, Joel. 
I mean, no, no, no. I was just recognizing that, that you weren't eating hot dogs 100 years ago. That's, that's just what Oh, that. I wasn't referencing your hot dogs. <laughs> just wanted to throw <laughs> that in there. Just, just <laughs> a quick age, age insult for you. No, 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 no. no. The hot dogs no, we were eating Sorry. were, ahead, there was Jody. this company called Schultz. So, you know, you might be right, Liz, that it probably wasn't as yeah. bad as I thought because Schultz hot dogs were these natural casing hot dogs made by a local company up Maine. And they were snappy oh, and yeah. delicious. And I was obsessed with them. They came in a long string, you know. And oh, wow. uh, they were, you were probably eating good stuff. It was probably not as bad as I thought. And then the factory mysteriously burned down. There's a whole, oh. whole hot dog conspiracy in Maine. So. <laughs> I wonder what the town smelled like the day the hot dog factory Delicious. I hope no one was hurt. I should probably delicious. say that before. <laughs> Start laughing about it. Okay. So we're we're Moving this is fantastic. This is I'm having a great time. So that we're 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 growing up. We're going to school. We're running running the shop. We're eating you know hot dogs. We're um, uh, what what is so we we we're kind of getting closer into high school years at this point. Uh, what does that look like? You're still in Maine. Yep. We moved well? up to Mousam Lake. My mom met a man named Ed Crosby, who's my stepfather, and he adopted me. Um, and my brother when we were 12 and 17 or no, 12 and 50, something like that. And we moved up to the lake and we were, we were cool then because we now Mm. lived on the lake. So I went from poverty at my Grammy store up to the, you know, 20 miles up to Mousam Lake. And my dad had a store there, an old fashioned lakeside store, run beer down to the dock. Um, you know, we had VHS cassettes, so we were cool. We would rent them, one of the first rentals in the whole area. We mm. had a meat counter, and my dad would grind up the meat, and we had lobster tanks. We It was amazing. So my teen years were spent bombing around Malsum Lake to Ario Speedwagon, and it was fantastic. Wow, that sounds incredible. I only know some of the words you just said, <laughs> but it sounds fantastic. So do you eat a lot of lobster? No, I'm allergic. You're allergic. What? Yeah. That seems unfair. I know. I had to clean oh, all the buttery dishes, but I was, I, and my dad would, it's so funny. I'd have to go clean the tanks. We'd go down to Kennebunkport and just go down to the docks and buy a barrel of lobster, put it in the truck and bring it back, put it in our tanks. And they would sell like hotcakes in the summer at the lake. And there was a farm stand also. And so we're selling corn on the cob and lobster, corn on the cob and lobster and freshly mm. ground our own ground hamburger. My dad would eat it raw. He would just eat it raw, which I can't. No way. Yep. The man had an iron constitution. So anyway, I would <laughs> I would take care of the lobster tanks in 1986 with my flock of seagulls hair. And I thought yes. I was so cool. But I couldn't eat any of the lobsters. But every night he would claim there was at least two to four lobsters who looked sickly. And they needed to come home and be eaten right away. So my father mm. literally ate lobster every night of my life from May to October. Wow. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I think that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, I love laughter. I'd be so in. So it sounds like both of your experiences, both in the country and then at the lake, you were still pretty close to the source of your food. Like you still pretty much had a good idea because we talked to some people and with our own childhoods, maybe not Joey's, but mine for sure. I didn't know. I had no connection to the food I was eating. And I think that that's such a big integral part of, you know, why I started Homegrown was like, hey, I need my kids to know where their food comes Mm, from. So it's beautiful that you have two very different but um, both significant examples of being close to your food, both with your Grammy and then with the shop with the fresh corn and the lobster. Like, I love that. I think that that makes a bigger impact on people's lives than maybe they would realize. So I, I think that's cool. 
Yeah, right on. So we're we're uh, we're eating we're not eating lobsters, <laughs> and we're working at the at the dock and getting after it. Yeah, did you, Joyce? Did you go to college from here? I did. I went to University of Southern Maine. I had sort of a long college experience. I left. You know, everybody wants to get the heck out of Dodge when they're 18. And I was like, I'm out of here. And I made it all the way to University of Southern Maine. So I didn't go very far. But then I went to Florida for a year. I bombed around with some girlfriends. I worked down here. Then I decided I'm going to go to Alaska because I was obsessively watching Northern Exposure. And I thought this was a great idea. So I packed up my Nissan Sentra and I drove from Florida where we were living and we still had the lake house. I drove to Maine, hung out at the lake house and partied for two weeks. And then I drove to Alaska across Canada. Wow. I did. I did. And I, I went to University of Alaska, Juneau for two years. And, uh, and, and then I finished up my degree in Maine. I came home for the last semester to become an art and special education teacher. But yeah, I, I doinked around in Alaska for two years. And man, did I learn a lot about game meat and living off the land there was whole nother level because you can't get things when you need them and um that was interesting i remember one fall we had what they called um and i maybe i probably wouldn't use this phrase now because i have two children who are adopted but it was called orphan christmas and very few people in alaska Mm. who are hanging out you know at the local billiard place we're all from someplace else and nobody's with their family at the holidays Mm. So they would have orphan Thanksgiving, orphan Christmas, and we'd all get together, and everybody was supposed to bring something they had killed. <laughs> so so oh you God. would eat... Only in Alaska. <laughs> so I have tried every meat known to man, and I'm still a big baby. I'm still chicken, pork, beef kind of girl, but I have tried it all. And that was, that was an interesting um, new exploration in food and sourcing food for me is the, the way that it's so matter of fact there in a way that made the deer hunting in Maine that I grew up with seem like kittens play compared mm. to what's going on in yeah. Alaska. Yeah, I've eaten bear, I've eaten wild boar, I've eaten all the anything that can be killed up there they eat. Yeah, and what did... Was there fresh produce available? Were they storing grains? Like, what else did they eat besides meat? Because I've always wondered what that looked like. Well, at that time, I mean, there's grocery stores in Juneau. I mean, you can just go down to the Fred Meyer and get yourself some bag. I remember that was the year Caesar bagged salad was invented, and you would have thought I'd won the lottery. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, there was some accessibility to like packaged oh absolutely produce yeah. of some kind okay. but the the what you would find in the meat section of uh, the what i thought was fascinating is if i went to the grocery store and everything cost a mint up there because of the you know how much it costs to get there um they'd have bison they'd have some locally killed meat in the meat section like it mm. wasn't so mm. corporate yeah that's beautiful mm-hmm. It was probably domesticated for to some degree, maybe because of you know FDA laws. I don't know back then, but yeah, I uh, I, I would love to go to Alaska. That's yeah. just I'm just gonna plant that in your I'm brain in. right now. I'm down. Do it. <laughs> it's so fun. worth it. I would it. love to go to Alaska. Do you ever visit there now? No. I mean, it's been now. Oh, you're, you're there for two. You years. You will love this story. In Alaska, when I got a scholarship, because there's no girls, right? So they give money to girls to go to school there. So that's why one of the reasons I went. I applied for a scholarship through some University of Maine, Alaska cooperative. And I went. And the campus is on the Mendenhall, right next to the Mendenhall Glacier. And all of the campus buildings are big log cabins and beautiful. And the student housing are these apartment buildings. It's not dorms. There are four apartments per building. 
and I had three Clinkett and, and Haida roommates, all native um, roommates. And so it was mm-hmm. every night my place was filled with, they just fished every single night. None of the students went to the grocery store, but once every two to three weeks, everything they got was canned food from their Grammys, whatever they brought with them. And then they, the fish that they would, I went salmon fishing with my roommates once a week at least. And I hate salmon, but one of the, one of the rules is there's no smoking in the apartments. And I was like, huh, okay, well, maybe you just don't want the apartments to smell like smoke. There was a smoke house. And I thought this is where people were supposed to go smoke cigarettes. Cigarettes, yeah. No. (laughs) There's so many Native American students living off the land in the student housing that a smokehouse was dedicated to the salmon smoking. How stinking beautiful is that? I just, there's not a better depiction of like, talk about building the next generation they pass on their food traditions so clearly that when their kids go off to college they have a dang smokehouse they smoke their fresh caught salmon what these are college students yeah today if you put anyone in the lower states in that situation they would be like what are you even talking about i also want to point out the fact that you now have exposed two areas in your life where you have incredible access to seafood (laughs) you're just like not consuming it I'm like, oh, it pains me. I love salmon. I love lobster. But anyway, so that's fascinating. Okay, so after Alaska, let's... Uh, yeah, let's... I let, want to hear more. Yeah. yeah, so you're graduating college. You're graduating college. Um, somewhere in this journey, have we already gotten to a place where you you meet your husband? You got married? I became a teacher um, when I was 25, 26. I, I had been student teaching and, and moving around, and I was back in Maine. So I finished my degree, and I started teaching... At um, in Maine and New Hampshire, right on the border, jumping. I was at Kennebunkport and then Summersworth, and I I spent about ten years teaching. And I met my Jeffrey, believe it or not, in two thousand three on Match dot com when that was not wow. cool. And like you would whisper, I met him on Match. You would not tell people, right? <laughs> so I met him on Match dot com, and he was thirty seven. I was twenty nine, about to be thirty a week later. And I had built a cabin in Maine of my own, and I was a high school teacher at this point. I thought I was going to live on my seven acres in the woods down a dirt road alone with my three cats forever. And then when I Mm -hmm. found him, he's this 37-year-old environmental attorney slash software developer, and he's super, super nerdy, super introverted, and I'm kind of the opposite of that, but I also am a, a bit of a hermit. And he has this house here on the lake, so we lived about an hour apart. And we decided we were going to meet up. We met on Match.com. I said, let's meet. So we met over at Barnes & Noble, and I told him to meet me in the children's book section near the book, Everybody Poops. And I thought, if he's willing to do this, <laughs> then maybe there'll be a second date. <laughs> so he did. And then that's the rest of his history. We were married. We were engaged six, six or seven months later and then married immediately after on Lake Winnipesaukee. And here we are. Tw- we're coming up on t- 20 years and with two kids. Wow. wow. Congratulations on that. That's incredible. I also love that you specified that book because you're like, I'm going to set the hurdle really high to see how far he'll jump. And if he doesn't get there, then I know. And it's like, you know what? How many women need empowered in that way? It's a good screening process. It's a good screening process. <laughs> you need to go meet me by. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So, so you and Jeffrey mm-hmm. are married at this point yep. and um, you're living in here. You have two 
Yeah, yeah, I unloaded, unloaded the house. The house. I, you know, I couldn't keep a house on seven acres in Maine. The market was too good, and it's a beautiful mm. post and beam home. And so um, we got rid of it. It was a heartbreak because I still think about that house. Mm. Seven acres mm-hmm. on the side of a mountain with a river out back. I think about it all the time. Oh, it sounds gorgeous. Yeah. And and um, you know, tell us about uh, tell us about your kids. What okay. that? Let's get into that journey. Well, I. Because I grew up, you know, we talk about how great the food was that I had access to, but the reality of my life was, is that I was handed like a Welch grape soda or a Coca-Cola anytime I had a stomach ache, a good grade, uh, shed a tear, what, you know, here's a good show, here's a Coke. So I grew up just in, just a wash in sugar. And Jeffrey was the same thing. I think our generation really battled with that. So that he and I have always had weight struggles because despite my access to what you would consider heritage food or good food or homegrown, you know, it was a country store. It was just as easy to grab a handful of Tootsie Rolls and a soda Mm -hmm. and out you go, go play in the sprinkler. So when we met, we were both, um, we've always battled weight, the two of us together. And, um, so, you know, we, when, so halfway into our marriage, I have a heart arrhythmia and I, I've always had it all my life. And so I went to the doctor and they were like, you know, this is, it may be a risk for you. If you decide to get pregnant, you're going to have to go on these drugs that can cause mitochondrial DNA changes and risks to the fetus and all this. So by the time I'm 34, we've been married, no, 33, we've been married three years. Um, I was like, yeah, I don't. I don't know that I want to do that. I was really scared. And there was a lot of pressure from both sides of the family. Like, when are you getting pregnant? Because that's all you hear when you're a young couple. When are you getting pregnant? He was older. He's pushing 40. And like, when are you going to do this? So we're hanging out here one day. And um, he says to me, he's like, let's adopt. And I looked at him. and, And Jeffrey says these things like, let's get a Mustang. Right? He just says these things. Right? And I'm like, okay. So I think nothing of it. A week later, the attorney and Jeffrey comes out and I'm getting huge things in the mailbox of adoption agencies, books, all these things to explore on adoption, adoption, adoption. He had the paperwork filled out within a couple of weeks and we started attending seminars on domestic and international adoption. At that time, domestic adoption was, especially in New Hampshire, starting to fall apart. There's always phases in adoption where there's easier times and less easy times. And we did explore domestic adoption here, but um, at that time, there was very few people to work with through private attorneys and through agencies. We tried to work with two birth moms, and they both wanted monthly visitation. Now, as a new mom, that was terrifying to me. I was a noob. I had no idea what that would mean to my life. And then a friend of ours said, oh, you know, meet my friends. They just completed a domestic adoption with China. You should consider that. So we went to a bunch of seminars and spoke with social workers, and we wound up going, opening a file with China. Mm. Our date that we registered with China was February 7th, 2007. February 11th, 2007. They still haven't today, as of today. I don't believe they've gotten to our date. That's how much international adoption slowed down. Wow. So two weeks after that first file, we switched to, to our two years after the opening that file, we opened a new file with Vietnam. It's a great story about this. We were up Maine. We, we have an old 1972 Airstream. It's vintage. The whole inside looks like it's all Star Trek colors. It's amazing. It's all avocado green. Yes. We found it in a field at Maine. Of course you did. Well, my dad was passing away. He hospiced at the lake. when he, he My father had um, 
asbestos from working with, or uh, lung cancer from working with asbestos in the Korean War. And so in 2006, he passed away. And when we were up there, there was an old airstream in the field, just weeds all growing all around it. And we would go poke around it while we're, you know, doing our vigils with my dad. And uh, the wife came out just, you know, what are you doing? And we said, oh, we love this. It's fantastic. I mean, yes, there's a rat's nest in the oven, but we still love it. It's fantastic. And she said, well, my husband only takes naps in that. You can have it if you want, make an offer. And that's how we wound up with our Airstream. So anyway, back to the adoption. We went in the Airstream up to Bar Harbor, and we were vacationing up there, and we were agonizing about what to do. China had slowed to a crawl. Our dreams of building our family started to feel like an epic mistake. Had we chosen the wrong path? And I'm a big believer in when you're on the right path, you don't feel resistance. And it felt like we were off of our path. So we're up there mm -hmm. in this little restaurant in Bar Harbor. And there's a, we're in this like, a, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it looked like a Swiss chalet restaurant. And I'm sitting next to the fireplace waiting for our table. And there's this basket next to me filled with um, magazines. And we had been talking nonstop for three days on this trip, Ethiopia, Vietnam, what do we do? We don't know what to do. Ethiopia was shutting down, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I looked down into that basket, and I still have it to this day. There was a National Geographic with a beautiful young woman standing in a field in Vietnam with the traditional garb on, and it said, find love in Vietnam, an adoption mm. story. So that was our, like, I, I, you know, I'm a big believer in signs. Jeff's not so much. He's like Spock. But even then, in that moment, he was like... <laughs> No, that's, that's a pretty good sign. I'm going to go with you on that one. So we started our file with Vietnam, and exactly one year later, uh, we were notified that we had a healthy baby girl and ready to come home with us. She was six months old. It would probably take another six months to finalize and get her out of country. But then mm -hmm. in the middle of that adoption, we got a phone call that she was sick and that they thought she had pneumonia. So they were going to take mm -hmm. her from her rural province to Hanoi, and when they got her to Hanoi, um, to the Swedish pediatric hospital, which was built during the Vietnam War, we got a phone call three days later. This is not pneumonia. She has a heart problem. We're going to get to the bottom of it. Then within 48 hours at 3 a.m., we're getting phone calls that she's just had emergency open heart surgery. Yeah. At eight months old, she had turned blue, and they had rushed her up there. She had a rare heart, in, the, in this country, a rare heart defect called TAPVR, Total Anomalous Pulmonary Venous Return, type 2. And her heart was completely backwards, and it was sending oxygen, uh, blood flow to the lungs two times for every time, one time that, a, that trip is made for us. And it was causing heart enlargement, and she needed a full pulmonary graft. Wow. And the reason that this has happened is because of Agent Orange. So 50 years after the Vietnamese War, the Vietnam-American War, um, generations of children are still being born with physical defects and congenital heart defects is the number one birth defect in the world. So it's the most common and it's silent and hidden. And her particular type of defect, usually children are in emergency surgery within 48 hours of birth. But for some mysterious unknown reason, she had survived at this rural orphanage um, till eight months old before it had even wow. begun to show signs. And that's, that's, that's wild. isn't that crazy? That's so rare. So the reason that it happened is that her little heart, when it had developed, created a pouch off the back of itself. And that had allowed her to survive to that point. And, and I guess um, 
compensate for this the larger defect. So then they used that tissue to create a pulmonary graft for her. So her pulmonary graft is flexible, beautiful, her own tissue. She's now a junior Olympian competitive swimmer. She's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. What a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I'm like blown away by that. Yeah, I, that's and crazy. It, the fact that her, her heart had to compensate and so you were able to use that piece in the same solution to the problem. Like, how cool. Our bodies are so cool. It's cool. And so we brought so her home. Next? We brought her home. Well, first we had to fight with um, the government because it began to shut Vietnam down. And it was shut down a month before we got her home. And we had to get the local Congress people involved. We had Democrats, Republicans. Mm-hmm. Every, it was funny. Everybody came together. No matter what side of the aisle they were, they, they intervened with immigration and they helped us get her home. Mm-hmm. And we got her home and she was deemed you know, immunocompromised, as all orphans technically are, because we're changing their entire terrain. Their entire biome is being challenged in a whole new way. And the first mm-hmm. year a, a new, newly adopted child is home from another country is typically really tough. Everybody's sick a lot. And so we got her home and we, were, we took her to Children's Hospital expecting some tough news. Like we didn't know mm-hmm. what was going to, you know, I went to Vietnam not knowing what her situation was going to be. Like, for instance, another family that went to the orphanage to get their baby, one of them was an EMT, and he called me, and he says, Joyce, I checked out your baby girl, and she's breathing 63 breaths per minute. And he's like, I think her pulmonary hypertension is not resolved. I went to Vietnam like, nope. I'm the kind of person, you know, no, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to fix it. And I'll tell you what, when we got there, her heart rate, her breathing rate, resting rate was really fast, but within 48 hours of getting the nutrition that we'd brought, the high-end formula, the goat's milk, everything that we'd brought, her breathing went down into the 30s, which was perfectly normal for a post-operative kid. Wow. So it was all about just, dehydration and nutrition. Yeah, just those minor those minor things. I'm curious how you even knew what to bring. Had you, in that time, because I, I imagine there's a time lag, have, were you just like in research mode? Like, I need to advocate for my child. I need to figure out what the best route is for her. How can I best support her? It's like, yes, we have this, this really heartbreaking diagnosis, but like that's the journey beginning, not the journey ending. I'm so curious how you embarked on learning more in that time. I was determined once we knew that it was an Agent Orange thing, you know, and when we learned that through my brother-in-law, who's a pediatrician in Hawaii, and he said, when a child has this particular defect, we have to send them to San Francisco. In Hanoi, they were doing 20 a month. So, yeah, because they're still farming the soil, and it's two feet of contaminated soil that would have to be utterly removed in order to stop this cycle. So Vietnam is never going to be out of the orange agent cycle. It's, it's forever. It's a forever chemical like glyphosate. So, um, when I, I, when I got her there and I, she was, you know, I had seen the breathing recover with the nutrition and and the hydration and I was giving her drops, uh, vitamin drops. I, yes, I had done a crazy amount of research before going because I wanted to go into that situation ready to heal from the jump. And I know what food had done to my body to mess me up, not taking care of myself for 30 years plus. I was determined to, you know, if I'm not going to have the willpower to biohack and heal myself, I'm going to biohack and heal her. So, Mm. and I did. And that's, and of course I had to rely on powdered formula, but I looked for the best I could get. I researched goat milk and found powdered sources for that. A lot of it was seized 
um, at airports. And so I had packed it in like several suitcases so that we could get through because at that time there was a huge, um, what is it? Formula contamination was being yanked off the shelves while we were in Asia that happened. So I was so grateful that I had brought my stuff, um, to, to help get her going. But yeah, she was, you could just see her. It was like watering a plant. It was within Mm -hmm. hours there was a shift in her whole being and her whole energy. And by the time we'd had her four days, she wasn't sitting up at a year old. She wasn't sitting up. She wasn't crawling. She'd been cut from stem to stern. So her core was weak within days. I had that baby crawling and I was, and this isn't good. They were Gerber graduates, but it's what I could find in, in, in Vietnam. I had those multiple Gerber graduates in a little line and she's crawling to get them. She was, this is horrible, but food motivated. And most mm-hmm. international adoptees are food motivated. And you take advantage of that in order to build bonding and recover their um, lost strength and lost abilities. For instance, she'd been through so much, so much pain without a mama. And the nannies did the best they could. You could see there was one elderly caretaker who loved her and was with her at the hospital, wouldn't leave her side. Um, So I knew she'd had love in that regard, but it's not consistent every day. And in the first three months of life, a child makes what? I think it's like 3,000 or crazy amount of hours of eye contact. And when I would hold her, she would avert. That was very intimate. She would avert her eyes and look away and turn her head because the intimacy was so uncomfortable. She also didn't know how to react to pain. Like she ripped off her thumbnail the first month we had her. She got it caught on something. And... um, And it just ripped just into the quick a little bit. You know what I mean? Like it was painful. She didn't cry. She just sat there and stared. So she, at night she would scratch the back of her neck to self-suite. There were all these behaviors that were clear indicators of um, maladaptation to her circumstances. You know, survival mode behavior in a one-year-old. Within, you know, a short amount of time, we would do little tricks like, I know this is horrible. I'd put a little bit of sugar on my fingertip. And when she would cry and need comfort, I'd put that on her tongue and bring her eyes to mine. And then by the time we'd had her six months, we would always feed her bare-chested. She was pulling shirts down when she was hungry. She had breastfeeding behaviors by the time she was 18 months old. So we regressed her to bring her back and bring the pendulum back to a healthy place in the middle in order to, yes, somebody's going to pick you up when you cry. There's always food. We had this, Mm. um, I bought the organic Cheerios and I had a little Hello Kitty Cheerio dispenser and I put it down low. She could go to that whenever she needed to, to be reassured that there's always going to be enough. And I think that was a huge part of her healing. So I was just trying to biohack a bunch of stuff that had happened to her that I wasn't there to see or witness or know or understand. And everything was a guessing game, but I was all in for the journey and going to make it better. And food was a real anchor in that healing. I, I've never heard it painted like that, and I haven't done a lot of research into that topic, but I think that makes sense just instinctively. Like when you are making a huge transition like that, having food be that consistent anchor and then connecting food with those positive experiences of eye contact and intimacy and closeness with your caretaker is beautiful. And I think... Um, that just brings a whole new power and respect to our like innate need for nourishment, both, you know, mind, body, soul. I think that that's connected all completely. So yeah. What do you think? So, um, 
uh, what, what's the, what's what's this daughter's name? Her name is her name is Camper. Camper. Like happy Camper. We met. Why do you, I was gonna say why are you laughing at that? Okay. Well, because Camper. I never know how that's gonna be received. We were camping out in South Carolina in the Airstream, and this wonderful old lab with the white muzzle and a pink bandana came right up to me. She was just wandering around, plurping around, came right up to my my Airstream and visited me for a while. And on the drive leaving there, I said to Jeff, I'm like, who was that magical creature? And he said, yeah, her name's Camper. She visits all the campers. And Jeff and I have wonderful experiences with summer camp. So I looked at him and I was like, our family's going to kill us, but what do you think? <laughs> he said he was... We need awesome. to name her. Yeah, no, I think I think that's beautiful. Cammy, does she go by Cammy at all? No, she's camper. And her Vietnamese oh, name is Lam, Lamb, and which means mm-hmm. forest. And so she's camper lamb. Beautiful. I love yeah. that. So, so and do you have any other kids? Yes. Two years after Camper Lamb came home, uh, we switched to special needs because we were no longer idiot noobs. We weren't so scared of things anymore. We're like, we handled that. No probs. Let's go for the special needs program in China. So we're checking off. We can handle low vision, hearing loss, heart defect. Like we, we were a little cocky about it, but we were like, we got this. So we put down albinism and everything under the sun. And within, my gosh, we had filled the file out and I'm sitting here at the lake with my girlfriends. We're having a girl day. We'd all worn like crazy moo's and we were ready to go out on the boat and just act stupid for the day. And Jeffrey calls down from the apartment from his office. He's like, open your email. So I go to open my email and I scroll, scroll, scroll. And here's this little picture of this little girl, little baby. And I said to him on the phone, I'm like, why is this Chinese baby blonde? And he said, she's mm. got albinism, but she wasn't snowy white. She was like strawberry blonde with little blue eyes. And uh, so we started consulting with the international doctors. And it turns out the National Organization for Albinism is here in New Hampshire. So we made a bunch of phone calls. And within 48 hours, we accepted her file. And she came home. Uh, we got her file on the supermoon in July. And she came home the next March on the supermoon. And her name is Luna Wu. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I'm and not... their age gap. Sorry, what's their age gap? Twenty-two months. And Luna has months. low vision and obviously sun issues, but she—you would never know it. She tears her. She tears life apart, man. She's amazing. Good Beautiful. A few questions as we kind of continue here. That that uh, and, and I I don't want to back up at all. And we're just. I mean, this is awesome. But what what is Agent Orange? Orange Agent. What, what is what is that? Well, it's a, a defoliant that they sprayed in order to find their enemies, and it's uh, oil-based. So they would spray the jungle, and everything would die and fall to the ground, and they could find the Viet Cong or whoever they were searching for. It's because it's oil-based, and it's, you know, it's basically a herbicide. Mm-hmm. So it's right up there with all the other amazing chemicals. They're all in the same family, glyphosate, all of them. They all have the same origin of, like, four base chemicals and mm-hmm. so um it's a forever chemical it's not going anywhere unless the u.s goes over there and removes two feet of soil and that was developed specifically for that purpose and then if i think i have read it was then like sort of converted and maybe used in other chemical yep. industrial products here back in the u.s so we have like chemicals today that maybe are a derivative of agent orange a lot yes 
Yeah, that which is obviously a concern. Um, and it's fascinating that you said it was a pediatrician in Hawaii made that connection for you because I don't know if it's so prevalent there. Is that a conversation that they're having? Like, hey, we all know that we had pretty decent exposure to this thing. Like, we need to have preventative measures. Or is there zero awareness? Because you would think even in the States, having similar exposures to other chemicals it doesn't mean that that's a topic of conversation in mainstream medicine so yeah I don't know if how that was for you talking to their medical team and if you were if you had talked to them and had them confirm that the the um, the Swedish pediatric cardiologist and then we have this amazing Aussie SOS doctor um when we got her she had a horrible cough and she was supposed to be on five medications and they had been sold in the street so I took her to an SOS clinic when we got out of, they had taken our passport and we were held in the province for four days and I was dying to get her back to Hanoi to get her chest listened to because nobody had handed me blood pressure meds or anything. So we finally got our passports back. It's a communist country. You're controlled while you're there. You have a guide and you don't go anywhere or do anything without permissions. Mm. So when we got back to Hanoi, I was free enough to get over to the SOS clinic and an Australian doctor there is actually the first one that said, yeah, it's, Agent Orange thing, the kids, it's everywhere. And I think Vietnam is, while modern and beautiful, and everybody's got an iPhone and this and that in the cities, in the rural provinces where she was from, there's street children and piles, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's it's very different. It's a beautiful country, and I always want to celebrate her country and celebrate her culture, but there's hardships there that we can't fathom. You know, you see things that you would never see in other parts of the world. Like as a first world person, seeing um, people, street people who are begging who have leprosy. Like that's the kind of Mm -hmm. culture shock that you have. There'd been flooding right in the province right before we got here. There was dead cattle everywhere. And they're just, they're in survival mode in the bulk of the country. So while they may be very aware of the Agent Orange thing, it wasn't something other than the Australian doctor that people were talking about. Mm, that's so interesting almost took an outsider to push to diagnose the situation or the cause and and yet they're in that environment every day and they just cannot get out of it there's so many other instances like that well the culture so i'm so curious war. now oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off oh no go continue the culture there is that it's the war of american aggression so it's a very different narrative mm. there's we went to the museum that celebrated their victory over america um mm. so it's it's I'll have to go back when I'm not in survivor baby mode to really take in and think about a lot. But I was in survivor baby mode. It was like, here's a baby. Here's a limited amount of formula and good luck. So that was it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I will someday. And you're what, 30, in your mid-30s at this point? I mean. 34 when I was that's handed. a lot. 34. Yeah, that's a lot to handle as a, you know semi-newly married you know four years into your marriage now you have a new baby you went through this entire process you didn't know anything about adoption previously what a wild story so i i know we're like we're slowly making our way right into what you've built today because it connects so clearly to hey you were handed these two beautiful babies but they did have some elements that led them to be immunocompromised and you know i would love to hear how you processed that information and you could have taken that many different ways. You could have, you know, sheltered and, and done certain things or leaned into the medical system in one way or another. But I think you took a very unique approach that led to, you know, ultimately what we're going to talk about in the 
ba- the nasal biome. So walk us through that journey of now you have these two babies, these young children, how do you keep them healthy and what are you learning through that time? Well, when Camper first came home, you know, we were taking her to the international doctors and and doing all the things you're supposed to do. And every, it was amazing how many different opinions we were given. This child's going to always have health issues. This child's perfectly fine. You need to cloister and stay home, get out in the world and let her experience germs. Like we, it was all over the map. And as a person, I think probably because of my grandmother who thought dandelion wine could cure everything and she was always very suspicious of the medical community, I was like, you know, it feels like none of you are really sure. So I just went with my gut. It's like, if she's sick, da, 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 da. So I did. I kept her home, kept her in somewhat of a bubble, but I didn't overly protect her. I I have a philosophy that we need to stick within our village, keep it small, keep it intimate, don't overly expose. Like, I'm not running off to Ikea with my new baby and letting her climb all over the play mats in the food court. You know, like, that's just not Mm -hmm. a smart choice for us. So I was told by the doctors... uh, a number of them enough times that she's immunocompromised. So every cough and sniffle was a threat. Like I would hear a cough in a store and I'd be like, (gasps) you know, and it was triggering my OCD from when my father was going through chemo and I had to protect him because he was neutropenic. And this time I was like, you know, I hate this. I hate this. I'm a biohacker. I'm a problem solver. I have to figure out how to protect her. And I started looking on the market. I started learning everything I could about how we get sick and how to not get sick. And I learned what we've all learned in the last few years, that it's all about the nose, that the nose is where viruses colonize. It's where MRSA and VRE take root. It's where hospital workers are often colonized for antibiotic resistant bacteria. I found all this to be fascinating. And so I started doing tons of research about that and speaking with the doctors that we were working with. And they're like, oh yeah, when, when a medical worker's colonized with MRSA in the nose, which is frequent, um, we'll give them these ampules of alcohol to burst in their nose and it will kind of take care of the problem. And if it doesn't, it can sometimes create a more severe antibiotic resistant bacteria, but usually it takes care of the problem. However, when we do this, we completely sterilize the nasal flora. We kill all of it. And then, then they can become chronic sinusitis sufferers and get sick easier an hour or two days a week from now. And I was like, what is this biome you speak of? Tell me more. And I started going down the rabbit hole of your nose is the first line of defense for your entire immune system. Your gut is designed to restore and maintain your overall terrain, but your nose is designed to trap and prevent colonization. Mm. And that's how I became the queen of boogers. There you go. And what year was this? Just to give everyone perspective. Well, Camper was home. was 34, so 2007. She was home like 2010 was when I really started okay. diving into it. She was home 2009. And then, yeah, I think that's right. I lose track because I didn't give birth. It's awful. People ask me, what are your children's sure. birthdays? And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Give me a minute. I know what day I landed in the plane home on U.S. soil. But yeah, yeah, I think oh, it was totally. about a year after she came home. I started, I had done all this research about how we get sick. And the other component to that was when I got on the plane to go to Vietnam was the year that Zycam was pulled from the market for hurting people's sense of smell. And I was bummed out because as a school teacher, I'd been relying on that heavily. But I don't think I'd ever questioned why the nose and why had that gone wrong. And then they reformulated. And when they did that, the number one ingredient is alcohol. So they were essentially doing what the doctors were doing with people that are colonized with MRSA. So I just dove into that and just read and read and read everything I could about 
the nasal biome and how that impacts your health. And that's how I came to the conclusion that, oh, and neti pots and sprays and how they work against your health because you send bacteria with the forcefulness of the spray or the wash of the neti pot higher into the nasal cavity and you run the risk of making the situation worse for yourself. I found that all really fascinating and I thought there just has to be a better way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm so curious. You're like, because I think gut bi- microbiome people can kind of get on board with, right? We've had enough research and studies and whatever. Probiotics have been around for long enough in pill form now commercially. Like we had probiotic food for since the beginning of time. But mm-hmm. the nasal biome, mm-hmm. if you apply some of those same learnings, how then do you come to the conclusion that you could possibly create something in your own house that would support that nasal biome? And and what in the world do you put in that thing? You know, I know the answer now because <laughs> I know the ingredients of your product, but I'm so fascinated by how you sort of uh, developed this recipe. So if you can share sure. some of that, you don't have to give us all your secrets. But. No, I completely, it's, it's pretty straightforward. First, I had to do the research, which took forever, because uh, I have to be certain about something. I don't move forward till I feel assured, and I've checked my sources. And back then, the internet wasn't so much... It was there, but we just smartphoned. Like, the first iPhone was Camper's first Christmas, and I didn't have an iPhone. So researching was a little slow, but I was looking for papers that would describe the type of flora that are in the ni- nasal passages and the type of flora that are in nasal passages of people who have destroyed their biomes through antibiotic use or chemicals or just lifestyle. Because by the time you hit midlife, you've, you've really dinged your biome in a major way. So... I had to research what kind of bacteria and I, what I learned is mostly lactobacillus. And I've always oh, been an apitherapist. I always love all things related to honey. And that again goes back to my grandmother and we were always buying honey from local suppliers and she'd use it for everything. You got a boo-boo, it's on, honey. You got a sore throat, honey. honey. Yep. Just on your cuts? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's, that now, you know, the government or whoever would tell you, well, there could be pathogens in there that can make you sick. And No, it's fine. If the water activity is low enough, it should, it's just a healing agent. I mean, they've been using honey on wounds since, you know, the Roman times. And in ancient Egypt, you know, they found honey pots in the tombs with the honey still perfectly intact because honey is stable. It's antimicrobial, it's antiviral, it's antibacterial. it's everything. So honey is mm-hmm. completely bacteriostatic. Um, so yeah, so I, once I learned what is in your nose and what, how the mucosal system works in the immune system and the whole thing, the whole booger biome from, from soup to nuts, the whole thing, I realized that maybe we could find something. Well, here's the other component. This is what I learned. I'll have to back up a little bit. When you get sick, most of the time, it's very rare that it's airborne unless somebody sneezes directly into your, you know, like a toddler sneezes directly into your eyeball or your open mouth while you're singing them a song, which has happened to me. Most of the time, yeah, it's, happened. Yeah, it's disgusting, but it happens. You get sick when you touch a surface and then you touch your eyes, ears, nose, or mouth. And even if you scratch your eye, that pathogen will travel to the upper adenoid zone, the high part of the throat, the hork zone, the upper part of the nose in the back there. And that's where the receptors are for the pathogen to latch on and then pass its code to you. And then your cells will begin to replicate that code millions of times over within hours. But it'll sit dormant, latched on for 1 to 14 days, depending on the variety of pathogen. 
you know, COVID lasts two weeks, but an ordinary cold can be a couple days. So I thought that was interesting. And that's why the doctors were using ampules of alcohol, because that's the zone of colonization. That's where everything latches on and colonizes. And if the colonization load is allowed to run amok, if your terrain is poor, your biome is poor, then there's more colonization and then it can reach your lungs. And that directly affects how sick you get and how long you get sick. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I thought at that time, once I learned how we get sick and I thought that was fascinating. And then I started learning about the nasal biome and that was fascinating. At that time, I was also obsessively researching Manuka honey because it had just come on the scene. And I was really fascinated by super honeys in general. And there's many around the world that are being discovered all the time. I don't believe we have one in the United States yet, but I'm sure it's here. And some beekeeper in mm-hmm. rural Maine has some mega dark honey that has, is a super honey. And the interesting thing about super honeys is they all work by different mechanisms and they haven't even isolated why each one individually works. But Manuka honey at that time, there was a scientist by the name of Dr. Peter Mullen and I called him. (laughs) He had a phone number back then published. I was like, hey, can you talk to me about your honey? So I call him and we chatted over the course of three months several times. He's since passed away, but he's the father of the UMF rating system for Manuka honey. And he was, yeah, it was so cool. He was so generous with his time and is so into my ideas and what I was doing. So I worked with him directly on this concept. And um, Manuka honey works by a chemical called methyl glyoxal. And scientists, of course, are trying to replicate it by adding methyl glyoxal to raw honeys and seeing if they can. But they can't quite get it right because there's something about the bee enzymes reacting with the manuka tree that creates the bee magic. It's a complete picture that can't be replicated in a lab. So Dr. Mullen discovered that manuka honey has this rating system of the amount of methyl glyoxal. And when you're in the 12 to 16 range, that you are in the uh, virucidal, bacterial, antibacterial zone. And I was reading at that time about how they were using it in military bandages. They were infusing it into the alginate uh, an alginate gel and putting it on bandages so they could use it on the field with dirty wounds until they could get mm-hmm. care. It would prevent um, infection in the meantime until it could, the wound could be cleaned. So I thought that was really interesting. And the reason that works, and this is a tangent. I'm sorry, it's going to be a tangent, but I'm so No, I love it. So this is not a tangent. Okay. No, it's not. This is, this is key content. And I talk with my hands, which, okay, whatever. So anyway, here's my arm. And uh, if you had a wound on your arm and it was antibiotic resistant, it becomes that way because the pathogen has created a biofilm around itself, a protective shell. And then when that happens, you can become septic as it goes throughout your body and your bloodstream. So you're colonized at the wound site, but you are becoming infected throughout your body because where it's colonizing and replicating, it's sending out, you know, this nasty pathogen that has a biofilm around it. And Manuka honey, when they would apply it to the colonization zone, suddenly the biofilm can no longer be created where the wound is colonizing. And all of a sudden your own immune system can get ahead of the infection or your antibiotic will begin to work again. And they were testing it on diabetic wounds that were hard to heal, tissues were, that couldn't grow back. And Manuka honey was having this amazing impact on that. It was reversing wow. antibiotic resistance. And I was like, wow. oh, wow, that's, that's shocking. You know, that's an amazing thing. Scottish Highland heather honey does the same thing, but by a completely different mechanism. Brazilian red, twalling honey, these amazing super honeys around the world that can impact all kinds of ailments, but Manuka honey was the star of the 
moment then and I started researching it with Dr. Peter Mullen and he sent me samples and uh, I told him my ideas. I'm like, well, if it could achieve this, but will it kill the beneficial bacteria? And he's like, no, because honey's loaded with lactobacillus. And I was like, ding, 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 that, oh, really? You don't say, lactobacillus. So how do we support the biome and help alleviate the colonization zone, but still enhance your nasal biome and be a prebiotic and a probiotic to your, your beneficial flora? And the answer was honey. It was honey. Wow. And I thought it would be so simple. We'd all just shove honey up our nose, right? <laughs> but no, it turns out it can be really caustic. It can be really, um, we did it for two years. For two years, I played around in this kitchen and I was telling people to shove honey up their nose and I was trying all different levels of Manuka honey because people don't realize since then the honey corruption has come in and people are inventing their own rating systems and then you'll find Manuka honey that's like 18 or 20 or 24 and Dr. Mullen told me very clearly that when you find anything above a 16 that that honey's been potentially warehoused and heated in order to falsely inflate the methyl glyoxal and in order to get a more valuable rating. But unfortunately, that rating results in honey that can cause a bee allergy reaction in a non-bee allergic person. No way. It triggers your histamine when you normally wouldn't react. So I have kept my, I always have worked with 15, 16 exactly. And even though there's no rating system on the other honeys that I use, um, I always am very, I had to create a honey blend that didn't burn, hurt, give you a headache or work against my larger mission. And that took about two years to come up with the exact right blend and the right mm. water activity level, that too. Mm. So, What does water activity level mean? Um, well, depending on when the bees have collected and the humidity and the season and, and a lot of honey is homogenized. It comes from many different hives and maybe it rained more mm. over here. So you have to keep the bacteria, the water level just so that so it can't ferment because honey will always try to turn into beer. Mm-hmm. It is loaded with mold and yeast and all you know all these good things that are static. They're just there. They're not going to hurt you. But if you're a, like a mold or yeast sensitive person, you should always be cognizant of that. That raw honey shouldn't be given to anyone under the age of one for that reason too, because there are pathogens like botulism that exist in honey naturally. But it can't harm you because it's just there and it can't proliferate. Mm-hmm. And it takes, you know, many hundreds of thousands of units of those pathogens to make you potentially throw up or have diarrhea or something. So, yeah. That's fascinating. I, I always wondered why the no honey before one thing make, uh, was a rule, but that totally makes sense. It's almost like the honey, bec- without the presence, without enough water in it, those things can't live, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's the same way with, like, fats and oils. Like, they can be stable at room temperature because they have no water in them. The moment you you know, interject your bone, maybe even saliva. I don't even know if that would cause it to ferment, but, um, that's why you keep honey in your pantry. Uh, you can keep it shelf stable, right? So, I mean, we do. And never mix water with it. Never. If it crystallizes, don't mix water. You heat it up. I used to get like sometimes in the early days of jarring and and doing our, when we switched to tubes, because we had to, um, you'd get some that were crystallized or dried up and, and honey is a humectant. It attracts moisture. And that's another way that it's mm-hmm. beneficial for your nose. If you get the winter wood stove, crispy booger phenomenon that those of us in new England are very familiar with. That's terrible <laughs> because then you're susceptible to getting sick because your biome, your mucus is not functioning correctly, but I would stick it under my armpit just for 30 seconds and your honey will go back to being completely um, workable. Mm, fluid again. Yep. Yeah. Somewhat pliable. Well, get rid of those crystals. Yeah. Um, 
That's incredible. So we're talking about the nasal biome. We're talking about honey. Where does this, what, what kind of honey was it again? Man, Manuka. 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 Where's that coming from? Where, where are we getting Manuka New honey? Zealand is the only place that you can get new uh, Manuka honey that's quality, true Manuka. It comes from the tea tree. And it is a single floral honey, so it's just sourced only from the tea tree, although with bees, you can never be sure. I was going to say, how, do they keep the bees just in no. that area with those things? Okay, because it could be landing on a clover, right? And you could get a little bit of that. Yeah. Away. It's like, people do, no, yeah. it's on the clover. Stop it. <laughs> it's like people who, you know, organic honey is a great in concept, but you really... You can't control where the bee goes and the drift from agriculture. And, you know, they do the best mm. they can, and I, I appreciate that. But it's it's definitely one of those products, as much as I'm an organic fanatic, that I am well aware it's probably not truly. So I'll, while we're on this topic, I'm curious for con- food consumption. If you were to give people guidance on sourcing honey just for everyday use, I don't know if you eat the Manuka honey or not, yes. what are some things that we can use to say, like, hey, the brown squeeze bear of honey is probably not as legit as you think it might be. So, yeah, give us some guidance on that. Well, the honey is one of the most corrupt industries that we have. It's big, big business. And so finding non-corrupt honey is a super big challenge, especially when you're buying in bulk like I am. It's It's an effort, and it's something that's perpetual because it changes all the time with seasonality and supply chain shortages. But as a consumer, my best advice for buying honey... And you should absolutely just go super local. Every state now has a Facebook page for their local beekeepers. And they will, these people are so intense. They're so detailed about their work. Like they are, they are not playing. So you can ask hard questions like how far away from industrial agriculture are you? Or do you feed, are you using anti-mite, uh, miticides with your honey, with your hives? Like they will tell you all that stuff. And you can find really dedicated truly organic and it may not be certified organic because they haven't paid or done whatever but talk to your local beekeepers they're really easy to find yeah i've had actually a few conversations with them i interviewed a beekeeper from one of my curriculums i wrote uh intense is a great way to describe them like you get them talking about bees and all of a sudden it's like straight face i'm gonna talk about my kids you know this is what we do and i was like whoa i mean when i to the point where, like, she, it made a beautiful interview and a beautiful lesson for the kids because she's like, I'm like, okay, people are worried about honeybee populations. What can we do? And she's like, maybe we should look at the green lawns that everyone has in the front of their yard. Maybe we should plant some flowers for our happy pollinators. I was like, okay, I can get on board. So as we're planting our garden, I'm like, we need flowers. We need to make our pollinators happy, you know. How do we live in the suburbs and still keep our bees happy is a thing I'm always thinking of because of that discussion I had with that beekeeper. And it, she's fantastic. I love her. But So if, yeah. if finding a beekeeper is kind of like top tier, yeah. right? That, that would be like the number one, honey. Is there an, a mid-tier? Is there like a, I am in the grocery store and I'm trying to find honey. Is there a best stop? Is there like a, a decent? Raw. Store always look for raw and, and, and most grocery stores have caught on now. I've been amazed in traveling between Florida and New Hampshire when I've wanted to source some raw honey and I'm, I don't know where the farmer's market is. I don't have time to find the local health food store and I'm dipping in and out of Publix. It's kind of amazing. They've got some decent raw honeys and if you just read and that it's local and it's a, an apiary that is reputable that you could Google and look at real quick, 
you can find decent raw honey now, but I never buy commercial honey that's in the honey bear or anything that is overly, uh, it doesn't have the right viscosity. When I look for honey, I look for dark and thick. And that's how I know that it's closer to nature. It's not manipulated, not creamed, not aerated, not blended with too many other things. I look for a single source, dark and thick. And how are they getting the pourable honeys, like the really clear, sheeny, pourable out of the bear honeys? Are they mixing yeah. that with something? They're heating it. Well, the, the one way that they the, the one way they do that is they they homogenize honey, which means they bring in from a bunch of different sources. And we use homogenized honeys because obviously most honey is homogenized when you buy in bulk. But they'll um, if they try to heat it up too much, they'll in order to get that viscosity to be commercially pourable and easy to bulk package. That's honey that's been heated. Sometimes the water will be added to it. Sometimes it will be corrupted with corn syrup and other things. Mm. And that's really common with imported mass produced honey. Like you'll, it's coming yeah, from China. I... It's coming from other countries that you don't know um, what their practices what... were before it entered this country. And then it's heated up in order to... You know, it has to be heated up to kill all the pathogens. Well, it's also killing all the enzymes and everything else that should have been fine in a, in a quality thick honey. But, um, right. yeah, they do that to stick it in the little, make it squeezable. Squeezable. And that's exactly the conversation around anything pasteurized, right? Your orange juice in the grocery store is pasteurized. You can't get fresh pressed juice without it saying this is not regulated by the FDA. You, your milk at your grocery store is pasteurized. That's why we advocate for raw milk all the time because... We know the beauty in nature's uh, most natural and wonderful healing foods. And so, yeah, um, that's a great question because I know some people listening would be like, well, what if I don't have a beekeeper in mind? Which I would actually encourage you just really quick. You probably have one semi-local. I know even like our Kroger, I don't know if it's just a charade or what, but they do have, you know, the wooden little shelving rack that's like local honey here. I assume it's just some beekeeper paying to have a shelf there. I don't know. I have to look because if it's being imported from like Minnesota, that wouldn't make any sense. But you could probably find someone semi-local maybe even within your state doesn't have to be down the road yeah i know people that just have um a couple um boxes of bees i guess is what you would say like in their yard and Mm. they produce honey they have limited quantities you might have to pay 14 dollars for a small jar but um it's beautiful thick dark honey kind of what you're talking about so it doesn't always have to be dark i shouldn't say that that's just a preference on my part Mm. um but that's you know i think that's a new england thing too because i was always told the darker the honey the more medicinal we're not supposed to talk about honey Mm. as medicine but in my life it was and um yeah so but it doesn't mean amber and lighter honeys are not they're just sourced differently if you find a really blonde honey that's often a creamed honey and that's been mixed to aerate it so then you don't Mm. really know what the original source would have looked like Oh, okay. So it just kind of disguises because there's no issue with aerating honey. No, because right? it could be great know. honey. It's just you can't eyeball it as easily. Sure. And there's a great episode. I don't know if you watch the show from the source, but Katie Button goes to um, a beekeeper. It does a whole episode on honey. It's fantastic. I watched it with the girls. They loved it. Um, so, yeah. Right on. So, man, honey. Holy smokes. I'm I'm almost kind of excited now when I go to get honey next to try to find... No. I'm throwing away the honey in our pantry. I'm just going to say it. So, Because um, <laughs> I was buying organic. I was like, I don't know. You know, you don't know the nuance. The, the, the chef in me wants to know f- for honey applications in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
are there any improper usage like like if i put it in my tea have i just hurt like like have i just destroyed the by heating it you mean yeah like have i just hurt have i just ruined the benefits of that honey yeah, or... there's still plenty of benefits it's still a great sugar for you to process in terms of it being a natural sugar unprocessed sugar it's, it's going to hit your body differently than just a nasty old white sugar so there's benefit to that um but you are killing some of the enzymes through in a brief pasteurization depending on how hot you like your tea but i think it's tolerant mm-hmm. i forget the temperature it's tolerant up to and each honey is different there's different tolerances with different honeys it's like a living organism so mm. don't hesitate to put it in your tea. I often think about the same thing. When I put it in my tea, I'm like, well, bye-bye enzymes. But it's still good. You're still getting benefit mm. out of that, choosing that over another sugar source. Right yeah, on. Maybe, a- maybe in our, our protein shakes, honey would be a oh, good yeah. option. But when it gets cold, I would worry. Because maple syrup, see, I don't know. This is a conversation. For no, honey is good to blend in a, in, a, in a smoothie. When I add honey to an acidic smoothie, I know I'm going to lose a little bit of value to the ascorbic acid and the vitamin C that happens naturally there. Mm. But who cares? It's, honey, it's still a better choice. It's always a better choice. So it will blend well in a smoothie, in a cold smoothie? Yeah, if you it put it in a blender, so. it should. It might take a few more pulses than normal. But if... I'll tell you what, though, Manuka in particular, it takes a while to blend that sucker in because Manuka, a lot of Manuka, some of them, can be like, a, looks like a lava lamp in your smoothie where it's, it's oh. not doing. Yeah. It depends on the honey. So, I love it. Uh, yeah. So it depends I'm on the try source. It. I think we should try it. I'm, I'm going to do it. Maybe I was off and thinking it would be too cold, but I think that makes sense. Blender is a blender. I'm going to do it. So we're, we're working with honey. We're working with the, the nasal biome. Anything else? And, and and I feel like with the nasal biome, we're we're, we're, we're you, you you've begun putting some honey up there. Have you have you been noticing in your kind of early tinkering phases of this practice any adverse or positive maybe effects? I'll tell you one in, adverse in, in, effect in that wasn't about our honey, which was fascinating. We found a honey that we wanted to blend. One of the honeys we wanted to blend in. And I didn't source it well. And I found out later it had been cut with corn syrup. When I got, they have to provide you with these sheets when you're looking at certain. So we both tried it and we would try every honey on our nose first. And then you got to wait a day to see how you feel. Within an hour of us using this honey, we both had blood pressure headaches. And I couldn't believe it when he said it to me. We're sitting watching, and I was like, God, man, I feel like my head, I feel my heartbeat in my temple. So the, the mm. nasal mucosa is like, I mean, not to be graphic, it's like the inside of your mouth. It's like your vagina. It is a, a source of absorption, you know? It's like using a mm-hmm. suppository rectally. I mean, you're introducing something in your body. I mean, ultimately, it's an ingestion, but it's a delicate tissue. I mean, it's probably why they're looking at so many nasal medicines in our futures, but it's a, it's a place where your body's going to absorb slightly differently, although you will ultimately just swallow it. And it impacted both of us. And that's, that was a real wake up call when it came to formulating this, that not all honey is created equal. And not that I didn't already know that, but the, the real life impact of that, I needed to create my blend so that it was always consistent and it didn't have impacts like that on people. And it was pleasant and easy to use. And it would be good for a kid to a grandmother. And so that became, and sourcing became like the biggest thing for me and getting the cleanest honey I can possibly get. Mm. Yeah. So walk us through that process then. You're whipping up honey, 
in your kitchen mm-hmm. trying to figure out which formulation is best, right? Because you're mixing several different times types, but Manuka is a primary ingredient. Yeah. At what point were you like, I can commercialize this and sell this? <laughs> well, I'm um, being the naive main girl I am. So first of all, Jeffrey being my nerd, okay, he had, I'm not even joking, we just got rid of the first ones, beakers, a heatable shaking plate, magnets that would spin the honey, like all this, like, it was, yes. cra- it was crazy, the amount of packages arriving at my house, and he just, he dove into it. And I, I was like game for that because it really engaged him in the process because up to that point, it just been me doinking around with honey while being an environmental attorney and the intellectual person that he is and detail oriented person. He is, he started getting the sheets that told us all the sourcing all the safety data mm. sheets on all the honey and where's the source and where are you homogenizing? Where's it packed? All these things. I thought I was going to mix up honey, slap a cute label on it and sell it at the local country store because I grew up in a country store where you could walk in and say, I would like to put up an honor jam stand in the front yard yeah. and it yeah. would be fine. No, that is not how it works. It turns out, and if I'd known this at the time, I maybe wouldn't have done it. I had to become an OTC homeopathic pharmaceutical. Wow. That meant hiring uh, one of the top homeopaths in the country to help us come up with homeopathic ingredients that we would put in our honey blend. So then it would be dealing with active illness and you could make claims around that. And then I would speak to the honey separately uh, per the FDA's requirements as more of a supplement, as an enhancement to your nasal biome, a support. So most nasal medications are planted in chemicals, sodium benzoates, saline, excessive amounts of saline or alcohol in order to be shelf stable. I'm coming up with this idea that, yeah, there's a lot of honey products, but they're all corrupt. They all have sodium benzoate or some insane other thing in order to make them viscous enough to be a syrup or whatever, or a spray. I wanted to keep it natural, embed my medicine into a honey blend that I also considered beneficial. So I wanted to hit it from mm-hmm. active symptoms to supporting your nasal biome so that you can fight off future germs. I wanted both. I didn't just want one or the other. So, but the initial mix-up you're doing in your kitchen is honey alone. And then it sounds like in order to sell on the shelves, you had to enter in this homeopathic sort of industry just so that you could sell over the counter OTC. And then it was like honey was like a side, you know, uh, counterpart, right? But it wasn't even really about the honey in your in your approach to retail. Is that accurate? That's a hundred percent accurate because that's the way our industry works. If I'm going to have a medicine and make claims, then it had to be, I'm either Merck or I'm a homeopathic medicine. Yeah, That's it. Interesting. So I you had can't, to, you can't just make claims. Yeah, about you can't honey. make claims about honey. So I knew my honey had this antimicrobial value and prebiotic, probiotic, humectant, anti-inflammatory, vasoconstrictor. I'm like all these honeys that I'm picking, I'm working with and I've created this magical blend but it's not enough. And my name is a claim, cold be gone. So then Jeff's like, we have to think about this as a medicine, honey. You're asking people to use it as a medicine. It can't just, so we then began consulting with the SBDC here and it was a journey with the, so we went right to the small business administration and we started, they have experts at their disposal. We went to UNH and spoke with people there. Um, we consulted with an FDA compliance attorney and the top homeopath in the country. And we said, can you work with us to take this to the next level and come up with a blend that will work synergistically with my honey blend and make a medicine. And that's how we did it. Mm. Yeah. And this was what, um, 
when we tried on the phone, you said 15 years ago. You Well, that's you when Camper this. came home and I started the journey. But it was, okay. it was mostly 2011. And then I didn't get on shelves till almost in a FDA compliant kind of way until 2014 or 16. I can't remember. Yeah. So there's a good time spin there. I imagine too, having to cash flow all of that like attorney bills and yeah. figuring that out at what, was there any point where you were like, is this worth Every it? Every day. I'm a new mom with two little kids and I'm home. I've decided yeah. to homeschool at this point and I'm home with them and I'm thinking I'm dividing myself. I, you have that. First of all, you have the imposter guilt. Like I'm not a business one. You know, you have that thing as one, like, <laughs> what, who do I think I am? And then totally, you're yeah. spending money from your family. We're bootstrapping, you know, and it's a few thousand for the lawyer and, you know, $10,000 to create packaging. Every time mm-hmm. I, we had to do something like just the packaging alone, we had to throw out 10,000 boxes one time because the FDA requires the red line around the drug panel to be an exact font size. And we had violated by 0.2. So we had to throw oh, out 10,000. Bo- to me, that's like, I look at the tree death of the packaging I just had to throw so I was always wrestling with all of these um I guess standards uh, goals and and ethics in my own life that I'm like I'm becoming a manufacturer I'm dividing my time from my babies I'm asking my family to sacrifice money um that could be in a college fund to for this dream but every time I heard from somebody who was like I had a cold for one day. Who has a cold for one day? Or uh, everybody in the family got sick but me and uh, wonderful feedback. Like I could breathe through my nose. I had a cold for six days, but I could breathe through my nose the whole time. I understood that, especially when it came to moms and kids, that you don't have time to be sick. I mean, they say kids are supposed to have 11 colds a year. That's bullcrap. They build their immunity naturally, but they don't need to be sick all the time to do that. Right. They don't need to be symptomatic 11 times. I'm so happy you say that because that's so not our experience. And we get mixed messages as parents like, oh, the normal cold is fine. But you're like, I've been looking at my kid for six days and they're really suffering. Yes, we can process maybe 11 things. But like, do we have to? I'm seeing these monster colds, man, crazy symptoms. Um, So what? So basically, and I so relate to that, too, because it's like, here you are, you have these beautiful babies that you fought so hard for and you brought them home and you're doing incredible things. I mean, I just can't think of a more honorable thing, honestly, if we haven't already said that. Like, your story is incredible. And then you stumble upon, because of your research mind, like, I love the way your brain works. I love that you go down the rabbit holes and you ask questions and you connect dots that probably the average person wouldn't. And then you sort of stumble upon this like thing that, hey, no one is you no one is applying honey in this way. Then you go to market, you realize, well, we can't apply honey in this way. We have to add something to it. So you utilize um, the homeopathic route. Now you're, you know, bootstrapping this business off the ground. And I think every mom and probably dad, if they're doing something outside the norm, have those questions like, is this worth it? What are we doing? And it takes one person to message you and say, Hey, this, this was life-changing for my family, or this changed our week, even that alone. Yep. And I, you know, I get that too. Like some people will be like, I got to have this awesome conversation with my kid about food. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I'm like doing what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to be there for my kids too. And like, mm-hmm. we see these gaps in parenthood around food and we're trying to fill those. And if that helps you, gosh, I'll pour time into that. Like, 
yes, it is worth it, you know? So I'm glad that you, you know, wrestled with that because that's normal. And I think that's healthy. That shows your love and dedication for your family. But I'm so glad you persisted because the more I'm learning about this product and I didn't even know about it until recently, I'm like, how can we get this in every person's home as, you know, just a basic medicine cabinet? Everyone has freaking Tylenol. Can we also get some legit nasal biome supporting product? I just, it has to happen. So, yeah. You know, as you were saying that, first of all, thank you. But, you know, earlier when Joey said something about the the last generation to think about think about things in a new way. When I was reading about your, and listening to your podcast, that's what I've, I've been doing, and um, it dawned on me that maybe you're that generation now. My generation's trying to recover from, you know, Pepsi-free, Coca-Cola, NutraSweet, and eating too many milk duds. Your generation <laughs> is maybe my grandmother's, the new generation of that generation. Like, you guys really mm. are trying to put an end to this corrupt agricultural pharmaceutical nightmare that we're in and I love that I love that so much I want my daughters because I'm an older mom you know Uh, so I'm I'm showing them people like you that are trying to make a difference if I had known at the start of my homeschooling life that the curriculum and the things that you're building and offering would have been the first thing I ordered right here in my mailbox because I think one of the greatest things about homeschooling my children is controlling their diet and teaching them about food yeah you mentioned that on the phone too like it's an added bonus that we have we get to feed them like they have access to our kitchen all day long mm-hmm. and they not that we like have to control their food from a obsessive manner but even our kids went to vbs this week and every time they came home they were just telling us i had goldfish i had oh my word i had sour patch kids i had graham crackers and icing as a snack i had chocolate chips and pretzels i was like yo like can we get some fruit in here? What is wrong with a little fruit? It was mind blowing. And so if that's my alternative, what a beautiful side gift of homeschooling that like, Hey, we can have wonderful access to food all day long. Um, so yeah, thank you for your kind words too. It's, it's exactly why we do what we do. And so I love that we got to connect and there's just so much that we share in our families. And I do think that so many people are trying to bring this back. But the issue is, we were, were floating and like we don't have those roots with the generation before us because they were severed. Mm-hmm. So we're either finding those people and talking to them or reading books. I mean, mm-hmm. I do a lot of reading or we're listening to their stories. Joey is actually the pioneer. The whole reason we have this podcast is because he wanted to record my grandfather uh-huh. um, who's 96 and he you know grew up during the Depression, was drafted into World War II was you know had a really successful career in education had five kids just beautiful life story and no one had heard some of the things that he was telling him at at like a social gathering so joey's like hey we got to get him recorded we need to like he's 95 96 and so that's why we even have this mic equipment and then it was like you know a couple months later joey's like hey you want to do a homegrown podcast and here we are we just hit a hundred thousand downloads we've been going since march i'm like we're having incredible people on the podcast what a blessing so thanks joe hey thanks you know for what? we're here we're getting after it I, um, we're trying to learn from the people that came before us we are definitely doing well that. you need yeah. to know who you're um, impacting because my cousin who's got a newly adopted son which I, I won't tell her story but you know her story in terms of his health struggles mm-hmm. she found you and 
she had been listening to you and thinking about, I mean, that was part of opening her world up of how she's going to parent differently. I love this. I yeah. love this sort of, because my rebellious Gen X attitude is, don't tell me there's no cure for the common cold because you are lying. It's just big business. And, <laughs> but your generation is like really diving into, let's change things in a big way as well. Yes. And I love that. Yes. Yeah, so encouraging. Super cool. We're... Um... I had a, I had a, I'm curious as, as, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, when, when, was there a moment when you like the light switch went off and you said, I'm making this a business? Yes. I, I had my first little spate of customers and we had, I think it was the first time somebody told me they had a one day cold. I mean, that's the jar in a fridge turns into the package it is now moment. That's when mm-hmm. I was like, I have cured the cut. And I haven't cured anything. I can't claim I've cured anything, but I had that moment in my kitchen. Like, that's right. Mm-hmm. I have cured you. <laughs> that moment. But then the second moment where I invested in myself was I knew I needed to go from that jar to an FDA, we'd done our research, we needed an FDA compliant package, we need a co-packer, we needed to get commercial kitchen. I marched my little butt down to the SBDC, they approved me without anybody, just me, and I walked into Bank of New Hampshire in downtown Portsmouth and sat down and told them my story and said I need a loan for $50,000. And that was so scary. I just wow. got chills listening to it that. It was so $50, scary. $50,000. Good for you for investing. So, Joyce, how did you, how did you come up with that number? What, what, did you do the math? Yeah. Was it, I mean, did you just... Okay. That's how much it cost to do a run. The run was $30,000, and then the ordering for... So, minimum run was $30,000. Wow. And then I wanted to hedge my bets for cash flow, and I had done a little calculation there. <clears throat> yeah. It was, and how many how many SKUs would that produce? That was my only SKU at the time. Cold be gone. How was it? Oh, sorry. How many how many units. runs? How many units? units? Um... What'd you get for 30000 Jeez, you know, I don't remember back then. It's changed so much because the more you do, the less oh, the, yeah. the price comes down. So I think back then that was like 10000 or maybe it was eight, oh, okay. eight or 10. So it was like scary. That's a significant amount. I had to move I mean, that product and the most I'd ever moved was 1000 Wow. So I was... How'd you move 1000 Oh, look, I would walk into stores and be like, my name is Joyce Dills and here's my amazing nose, honey. And that was... <laughs> <laughs> and so so you 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 brought in let's let's just say 10,000 units mm-hmm. um just for just for kicks and you don't have to share if you don't want to but how many units is is it is an order looking like these oh, days oh gosh um tremendous we're in cvs now we're in we just got picked up an Army Air Force Exchange, so we're going international into the expos. Of, so service people who can't buy pharmaceuticals in the country they're in, they can buy it there. Our biggest sellers are our pediatric SKUs um, because, you know, obviously kids, they there's nothing like uh, – children hate sprays. They hate syrups. Mm-hmm. This is a great totally. solution for a lot of moms. You can swab two kids really quick if you pin them down. Um <laughs> No, so but I think we moved the ten thousand the ten thousand units. I moved a lot with Mini Tonka General Store and Vermont Country Store. So I hadn't grown in my mentality yet at that point. I was still of mm-hmm. I'm sticking with what I know. I was raised in general stores, and so Vermont Country Store mm-hmm. catalog and the Mini Tonka General Store they were two of the biggest sellers. And then it grew from there into little health food stores. The mom and pop health food stores would pick it up. Mm. 
And at, did, at any point, did you go online retail at all? Yeah, we did. We just created our Shopify store, gosh, actually recently, like in the last 18 months. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because we became, we got overwhelmed pretty quickly. I had, I'm going to tell you the Red Sox story now, which I had spoken to you about before. Oh, this yeah, is yeah, how we leapfrogged in growth. So I'm selling at little stores all over here and there. And the country stores are hold it, keeping us afloat. And the demand is there. So I've got proof of concept. It sells, people understand it, and it's resonating. And this is pre-pandemic, before everybody learned that the nose is like the thing. Um, mm-hmm. So then I, I, the Red Sox, we go to Florida every year where the girls swim train and the grandparents are down there. And we go to the spring training games at JetBlue Park. And the Red Sox, when they got back to Fenway, I read in the paper, they all had a cold in March, the end of March. And I was like, well, my team has a cold. So I cannot be allowed, <laughs> right? So I go to the Fenway corporate roster. They list everybody that works in the corporate offices at Yake, you know, right in Boston. And I go down the list, and there's this one guy's name, Russell Noir. And he, I had remembered the name because Kurt Schilling had brought him to the team in 2004 when they won the, the World Series, right? So... <laughs> So I'm like, oh, I remember this guy. He's like some guy from Arizona who's this old Samoan dude, long white ponytail, and he's a massage therapist and alternative healer. So he, I know. So I'm like, this is my guy. So I sent Colby Gone with a note to this guy. And I didn't think anything of it. And like a month and a half or whatever it was later, it was the night before Father's Day, I get an email in the middle of the night going, hey, I love your product. Can you bring 23 units to Fenway tomorrow? Everybody's sick and we have to travel. So I'm waking Jeff up, who's a rabid Red Sox fan. I'm waking him up in the middle of the night and I'm making him read the email because I'm like, is this like a Saudi prince has a million dollars for me? Is this a lie? And he's like, no, because there's 23 guys on the roster. It's re-. like that was the authenticating thing for him was the number. <laughs> the number is right. right. The number is correct. So it was Father's Day and I was like, go take this to Fenway. And so he got to go and go down in the clubhouse and meet players. And now it's like five years later and we have, um, we give away Colby gone and Algebra gone after every first inning at every spring training game. And they fly our little bee all around. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. That's freaking awesome. I didn't awesome. know you were famous. That's incredible. Only in March. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, oh, and then so apparently cool. a CVS executive saw it in the clubhouse, and CVS is the largest corporate sponsor of the Red Sox, and I got a phone call saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to try something new. We're going to do a honeybee end cap. Will you be the focal point of that in 15 New England stores? And I was like, absolutely. You know, yes. somebody says something like that to you, you I'm, I'm pooping my pants, but I'm like, yes, I will do <laughs> yeah, that. Totally. So what year was that when you got the God, call that was from five, the CVS executive? Five years ago. That was math uh 2017 2017 and at this point you you've already like been been fda compliant right you have the legit packaging you have the co-packer and the because so you could turn those things out and that's basically how you sold that initial group of ten thousand. wow so you went so cvs um what what kind of demand did they have and is it is it is it all cvs oh no it's it's now like we have little chains we're in mom's organics and and a little grocery chain in portland oregon and little ones being picked up and then we got picked up by distributors then we hired a sales team and we mostly do a lot of it ourselves just in the family and we do it all from the computers um because the the manufacturing plant is in the fda compliant plant is in mineral wells texas is one of the top small homeopathic manufacturers in the country and i love them because they do everything by the book and then our warehouse is in florida and they that's it you just run the whole thing from the computer but 
I think the biggest thing that helped us get over that hump is that we have a really long expiration date. So it's four mm. years on every bottle. So it give, and honestly, then we were told by the mm. FDA, you didn't even need to do that. We don't often require expiration dates. And I was like, well, I've already paid for the shelf stability study. So here you go. We have four yeah. years. But the FDA actually showed up here to the lake. They showed up. No three ag- or two agents stayed three days. And they stayed? Yeah. Well, they come every day in two cars. Oh. Two cars with like badges. But they, they called on the house phone, which I thought was weird, which we only keep the house phone for the kids to play with. So they call and they're like, are you manufacturing this in your house? And I was like, no, I haven't done that in years. I've spent two years getting a plant and getting money and mm-hmm. doing this. And they yeah. really thought I was just mixing up honey in my kitchen. And I was like, how would I get it in the little tubes? Like, come on, dude. Like, that's not. But he said they'd had special meetings about how to deal with us because they'd never had a small pharmaceutical come out of our region. Everybody always makes jams, jellies, salsa, stuff like that. Nobody's taken a a whack at medicine. Like the only people that do that are Pfizer and Merck and big companies like Highlands, you know, big companies. So they showed up and thank goodness Jeffrey's an attorney because he had binders of Here's all our batches and here's all retained samples. And this is what we would do if there was a recall. And like he had all his little duckies in a row. Yeah. The only reason we knew about doing that is because the SBDC gave us so many people to ask and resources and printouts and because they don't publish these wow. things. It's not like there's a how to go to market. Well, there wasn't then. There is now. So if anybody's looking to create a consumer product in the food or pharmacy or health and beauty realm, there's a gentleman by the name of Bob Burke. And it's B-U-R-K-E. And he used to be, Stonyfield Farms is here in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And he used to be the VP of marketing there. And he's created a guide, a field manual of how to navigate the natural products world. Wow. We might need to check that out. So <laughs> we're, we're taking care of our, our um, and, and I'm just going to kind of zoom back into the nasal biome if that's okay. Sure. Um, we're, what, what are some of the common mistakes that we're making? That maybe are dam like what are these mistakes that could be damaging our nasal biome today? I think using sprays or anything forceful. If you're using something that is a spray viscosity, then it has had its viscosity changed through water activity or glycerin. Mm-hmm. And glycerin should not be in the nose. It completely destroys your biome. It's got all these negative side effects. And I think label reading is the number one thing to do if you're going to stick anything up your nose. And it's like ice cream. You want the least amount of ingredients possible or the simplest, most natural amount. You need to pronounce everything that goes up your snoot. I think a lot of sprays and even neti pot users, I think they use excessive amounts of saline. So just think about it as a garden and what would you put on your garden, you know? Mm. And what about a water-based spray? Is there an issue with that? Often they are stabilized with sodium benzoate, just like a juice, a shelf, you know, when you, you see juice on the mm. shelf, it says it doesn't expire for two years. And the moment you pop it open, it has to go in the fridge. It's still loaded with sodium benzoate or sorbic acid to such an extent that it'll destroy your flora. Mm. Okay, good to know. What would be some common symptoms? Sorry if I just took your question, but someone with a disturbed... Uh, and I might be asking this for Joey. He's always had nasal issues. Always. And I'm like, how can we stick some honey up your nose? Because what would be some common symptoms of someone who is who has wrecked their nasal biome? In an adult, it's chronic sinusitis. If you've mm. got um, where you're always becoming colonized or infected or low-grade inflammation that's perpetual, then that's a symptom that you're 
biome is not your terrain is irritated not correct doesn't have the right flora and so i wouldn't say use it every day but it's it's like a supplement it's like think of it like you're easing the inflammation you're giving your nose time to heal because your body will always self-correct if you're giving it what it needs Mm. so you don't want to over self-correct you want to give it healing time um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, I have a one daughter who's chronically inflamed, and it's my daughter who had the open heart surgery. And so we we work on her nasal inflammation and her histamine um, through the gut. That's our you know we think of it for the base level first, and then the nose mm-hmm. is just sort of the tail end of that biome. Mm-hmm. We like to think of it from the rooter to the tutor. The whole journey <laughs> needs to be healed. <laughs> Uh, that's so accurate though, because I forget who it was talking about your, um, microbiome, but yeah, your, your lining really starts in the mouth and the nose and goes all the way down. It's not just like, oh, the small and large intestine. No, that's like two quarter, two quarters of the way down. Yeah. So, so if we have a, if we have a mistreated nasal biome, it's likely that we are going to experience inflammation. Does that just mean like congestion? Yeah, that non-productive swelling, congestion, overreacting to... Doesn't necessarily mean I feel sick. Yeah. It's just having a hard time breathing. Yeah, or yeah. you just react to stuff in the environment real easy. You you're, you mm. overreact. Mm. Allergies, histamine response, yeah, all of that. Now, uh, the the let's, let's, let's ask the inverse or the converse, whichever one is appropriate in this setting, of that question, which is... You know, what would be the typical benefits or what would my life look like potentially if I had a very well-established nasal biome? I think people who have the healthiest nasal biomes don't get sick as often. I think that their nasal mucosa, which are designed to trap and prevent, and let's talk about boogers. It's the booger biome is what it is. And when your booger biome is functioning correctly and you have the right amount of pH, the right amount of moisture, and the right microbiota, it then you are able to trap and prevent and limit colonization effectively. And you're not someone who suffers with sinusitis and doesn't sneeze every time somebody, you know, comes near you with a cat or flowers or whatever. Mm. Yeah, that's how I view it. And I know that mine has enhanced tremendously. When I was a school teacher, I lived with a box of tissues next to me 24-7. I caught everything the kids caught. And now Mm -hmm. I can know that I, I feel more confident about my ability mm. to it. I mean, I'm still, I'm still safe. I'm still a hand washer. I don't touch my eyes, ears, nose, or mouth when I'm outside of my house. I'm not a mm-hmm. neat freak by any stretch of the imagination. Like I, my kids can kiss the dog on the lips and go lick that rock over there. When they come in the house, we wash our hands and this biome can be just as, as intricate and, and full of beneficial bacteria as possible. When I'm out in the world, I find that, I am far more diligent about the germs that I'm encountering because I don't think Mother Nature intended us to touch the same doorknob that 10,000 other people touched at the store or the grocery cart handle mm-hmm. or the, the handrail at the airport. That's over-challenging what we were designed to be exposed to. So I like to think mm-hmm. of my little remedy as that little extra measure of protection so you feel slightly less vulnerable because even our, despite our best efforts, the environment is destroying our biome from the outside in matter what we do mm-hmm. you know and this is just one tiny component of that this what i've tackled so as we're supporting our nasal biome there's a number of i'm sure practices that we can em- employ but like one of which being go out and get buzz go check out cvs go to 
coldbegone.com, right? Yeah. These are some of the places we can go. What else can we do to support our nasal biome? Um, well, eat healthy, avoid antibiotics whenever you can. Don't use nasal products that have sterilants in them. And think of, of, uh, think of things like glycerin and saline as sterilants. Like what do they ultimately do to a biome, to a living thing, to your flora? Think of it that way. So avoid those items and just, it's all about diet. It's all about building your biome up from the bottom up to the top. And what would be some of those key foods that we would want to ingest to, to support that biome? I think I know. The yeah, fermented food. foods, <laughs> fermented yeah. organic foods. Yep. That's the key to, to yeah. a biome. And I'm really big right now on um, exploring different types of strains of probiotics. Um, mm. There's one in particular, I don't know if you've heard of it, called L-ruteri, lactobacillus ruteri. You've heard mm. of that? I don't know. Okay. I feel like Caitlin said that. I was going to say, Joyce and Caitlin need to like wake up. We did a we did a podcast episode with a microbiologist who has a commercial fermented food business, and uh, she's the bomb. She's the bomb. Yeah, you two need to chat. Yeah, you guys would have a, a good old time. So tell us about this <laughs> well, unique strand of. Probiotic. I'm obsessed with it. Um, <laughs> so I am not a doctor. This is not medical advice. I'll preface it by saying that. Um, so I've been reading about lacto. Well, okay. I've been reading about poop transplants. If I'm being really transparent, I am fascinated by the poop biome as much as I am about the nose biome. I'm really interested in the other end as well. Not that I'm Do about to come second. up with a bum swab or anything. Like that. <laughs> I was about to say, are we going to go there? No. A bum swab. <laughs> Holy. Smokes. Maybe I will. I don't know. But I was reading that there's this one um, uh, strain called L. ruteri, and it boils down to it's the breast milk strain. It's one of the few Mm -hmm. human-derived strains, and somebody patented it back in the day, and so you can't put it, like, you know, and that's naturally what they did in the era of uh, the food industry trying to take over the um, milk industry or breast milk, trying to Mm -hmm. vilify that. So you cannot get it. And only certain probiotics who paid to have that in their strains will have it. And they did all these studies on L. ruteri, like in a, in a, they used a surgical floor with elderly patients. And when they were just administered L. ruteri while in hospital, they reduced their secondary infection and resurgery rates by like 80% or something. Wow. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's amazing to me. So L. ruteri is akin to colostrum, which is akin to, mm. so it's all in there. It's part of that spectrum and it's the tiniest bit of that. So I'm, I'm studying, I'm just, and I'm just babbling about it because I'm just starting this journey, but L. Ruder, I want everybody to look it up. And where can you find that? Does, is it something that has to be cultured in a lab or can you find it naturally? Not a clue. Outside of breast milk? I order mine off of Amazon because I found one company that had a liquid formulation. It's L. Ruderi and L. Raminos. I might be saying that wrong. And I put it in a little, we put it in smoothies. We put it in smoothies so that I'm trying to repopulate my children's biome. I believe these are the missing links for her allergies, perhaps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a supplement. Do you remember GC Math? I do. That your mom used to sort of, it's not grow. It was like a cultured dairy derivative, I want to say, but yeah. maybe not dairy because she doesn't do dairy. I don't know. Anyways, there was a lot of research on that helping with gut repopulation and overcoming wild symptoms with this GC math. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. I don't know. It was always kind of a weird terminology. I need to look back into that actually because it was really, I remember the GC math and I remember being like, what on earth? 
earth are you trying to get me to? Our kids used to take it. Anyways. Um, Ruthie I th- liked it. Yeah, she used, we used to freeze it in ice cubes. I think it's in that same category as this really unique compound. I don't know. We're not doctors here. I have a question <laughs> for you, though, because you can be found in CVS and other places, but I already have, like, a couple stores locally that I'm like, if they knew, they would carry you. Is there like a request mechanism that folks, because I know when folks listen to this episode, they're going to be like, wait, how can I get this? Not only just online, but how can I get this in my store? Is there a way we can, we can like ask? Yeah. If you go into any small health food store, we have enough distributors now. They all pull from two major distributors in the country, most small health food stores. It's, it's big business and it's kind of awful. Like they have to do a, like a $400 minimum order in order to pull, but I can be ordered that way, but any store can order directly from us and we will extend the distributor discount to them to help because I know these mom and pop stores, they don't want to place a $400 order every time they order something. So we offer direct, but yeah, that would be fantastic if people went into stores and said, Hey, have you seen this? That would be really helpful because I, it's hard to reach families like ours. Right. Yeah, and I'm so surprised, too, with how much similarity um, that I had never heard of the product. And now I'm like, I wish we had this product two years ago. I think I've seen it. You have seen it in the store? Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, Joyce. Are you in Ohio, I assume? Yeah, I think we are. are. We're in Aikens now. We're in Aikens. There's a store chain called Aikens, and it's got like 23 stores. And then I think we're in some smaller mom-and-pop stores. But it changes so often. Huh? What'd you say? Were you, were you ever in Kroger? No, not yet. Nope. No. Okay. For some reason, yeah, for some reason, that's yeah. Maybe, maybe, you I, just maybe I'm wrong. Similar packaging. I was looking it up online. I was like, man, I feel like I recognize this, but maybe. maybe not. So if we, if we're, if those listening are like, hey, I want this, and we can just go talk to the the people that own that. Like, I'm already thinking Ben from Harvest Market oh, would totally. love this product, oh, yeah. and I think it would be that is how you reach the community, yeah. right? Because not everyone's going to go online and order from you and Amazon, whatever. So I think that that's really cool, getting on store shelves and having that. Um, I made you a little coupon today. If anybody wants to order from our website, I made you a little Homegrown30 code, Homegrown30, and anybody can get 30% off if they go to the website. Oh, that's incredible. We will for sure reiterate that in the end. Make sure you write that down. And I'll link that in the show notes, too. Homegrown30. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm going to leave it permanent, too. Oh, wow. Oh, oh what goodness. a blessing to our community. Yeah. Thank you so much. The, the um, I think you already answered this mm-hmm. question, Joyce. But I'm going to ask it again, and you can reiterate if you have to. and Or you can say, ah, we've talked about that, and we'll just move on. But I ask it every every episode, and it's, um, hey, we, we've talked about, you know, growing up eating hot dogs mm-hmm. to learning how to hunt with, you know, Alaskans <laughs> to, um, you know, bringing kids home from from you know, Vietnam and all the way to starting a business and, and our nasal biome and maybe our booty biome. Yeah. I don't know. It's we, still part of the biome. We've said know. anus on here before. We have. I don't know. I didn't want to go there again. Anyways, we sorry. already did. We did it. Anyways. <laughs> um, with, with the, with the amazing you know, career you've, you've, you, you've had, but also that you do have and that as you're continuing to grow, what, what is Joyce learning today? I'm learning that I need to prioritize my health as much as I did my kids. I think mm. that's mm. a generational thing for me because I'm 50 and it's a, a different life experience I've had. When I look at young couples like yourselves that are, I mean, you're just right out of the gate doing it right. 
but you're also doing it right for yourselves. I, mm-hmm. um, I look at that and I think that's the missing link for me because as an entrepreneur, I'm going to be really blunt. As an entrepreneur, I'm a middle-aged, overweight, white chick, right? And I'm talking about things with my New England accent. And I think that the perception of me is I'm just some crazy, silly mom that came up with a crazy, silly idea. And nobody knows the amount of research and thought and depth that I've put into this and how I'm actually a smart person. And I think it it has hurt me in my entrepreneurial journey because I have to overcome these biases and perceptions that not only do other people have of me, especially in the male-dominated investment world and the business world, especially with buyers going into stores. You're trying to present yourself as a healthy person who has biohacked something, and instead, I'm me. So that's Mm. kind of a hard sell. So I think trying to change my perception about myself and overcome my own personal biases that I, I know what I'm talking about. I have put more thought into this than any other human being on the planet. It's a truly innovative new idea and I have faith in it and I know it's good and I know it will help people. And I always have to tell myself that every day. I actually have a thing on my computer that's, it's a Jane Austen quote that says, silly things do cease to be silly when they're done by sensible people in an impudent way. And I stick to that. I'm like, yes, you're talking about boogers, but there's people will get it. They will understand. Have faith in yourself. Have faith in people. And I, I don't know if that actually answered your question or that was another tangent, but there's, there's. Some. I think it answered it spectacularly. And I, and I would say, Joyce, I don't think anybody listening to this, certainly not me, is going to be like, I don't know if she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> no, and I, even as you're saying that, like, I, for a moment, I was like, man, that. It breaks my heart that you sometimes encounter that, but I'm also so honored that we get to share your story to so many people because I think it can be life-changing and revolutionary. And man, if we can equip young moms, who's like the bulk of the people that we chat with and are in community with, they're going to, they're going to have so much benefit from the hard work and research and diligency that you have put in. And also, yeah, just like this entire podcast episode is a tribute to your character i think it comes out in every single story you tell and so i don't know i'm just like i want to speak against that you know <laughs> well, thank you per- uh, perception <laughs> because i think that you're such you're so much more than but but i do love your your desire to now go okay i've been working so hard on my kids i think this is a mom thing too i need to turn around and have some focus on me and i think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that i think that's a wonderful um, pursuit to go on, but yeah, I just, I'd go as far as to celebrate it and yeah, I would say, absolutely. I think, I think that's awesome. Focus on it. And, and one of the ways that I have found as a, as a, as a parent, as a husband, as a, as a leader, I, one of the best ways I can take care of the people around me is to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not only in a physical nutritional way, cause that's what we're talking about today, but also in a mental way. How am I mentally challenging myself? Am I reading? Am I having conversations with people that are wildly smarter than me, like Joyce? <laughs> mm-hmm. Am I, you know, t- I mean, my wife is way smarter than me. I'm, I'm like, mm, I've only got, I can only go up from here. It's great. Um, no. But, but there's, there's ways to challenge yourself, um, you know, spiritually. So we're, we're, we're all kind of getting after it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm on, I'm on team Joyce. I love Thank that. You. Keep, mm-hmm. keep, uh, keep, keep, keep getting after that. Um, Joyce, this is the part of the, the episode where we just want to promote you and all the stuff you've got going on. If people haven't figured out by now, Joyce has a product called Buzz-A-Go-Go. 
That's B-U-Z-Z-A-G-O-G-O, Buzz, like B, Buzz a go go. And this is a product that is like a nasal swab. Well, is the product called Cold Be Gone or Buzz a go It's so made by Buzz a go. It's right. Cold Be Gone made by Buzz a go go. Okay, so both terms are yeah. accurate, but the actual product name is called Cold Be yes. Gone. Got you it. can say that because you have those homeopathics in there. I got it. Bada bing, bada boom. And, and, and this, this <laughs> right on, we're just, we're doing it. So we, we <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, so this product can be found in CVS stores. You can find, you can find it. It's sold now direct consumer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you can get you it can right on the website. online. Yep. And this website is coldbegone.com or buzzagogo.com. And Cold Be Gone is spelled with two E's, like a B, like a buzzing B. Cold, B-E-E, gone.com. And honestly, any search engine, like, you it, can even type in. Google's pretty smart. <laughs> It'll help you get there. People will It'll find. help you but get there. But we will also lo- link in the show notes. You can find Joyce and her company on Instagram at Cold Be Gone. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the Instagram handle. And that's, again, Cold, B-E-E, gone. So two E's. And she also has a TikTok. Mm, we heard it's pretty, pretty fast. Yeah, she neither, said she was Gen X, but I mean, like, I don't, I don't have a TikTok. Yeah, so. neither of us are on TikTok, so we can't speak to that because I don't know. We're, we're... Maybe we need to figure out you the TikTok. You need to figure out TikTok. TikTok. I'm going to tell you TikTok why. I will tell you why you got to figure out the TikTok because Instagram and Facebook are pretty locked down by the powers that be and the corporate overlords that are taking over our lives, okay? <laughs> but TikTok, while still owned by China, you can get organic reach there so easily if you're just creative and weird and do a little something something it's amazing you'll blow up overnight and that i'm sure that's going to get shut down in the next year or so but if this is a Mm. this is a moment in time where you could build something without it being without having to pay for that we might have to figure out the tiktok game anyways you can find joyce and her company on tiktok and i'm guessing is a handle is it at buzz that is the handle on tiktok go find her she caught a raven she got a raven landed raven. on her. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, tell us the story quick. I'm sorry. Oh, there's one other story I want you to tell us before we go to, because I want to talk about Lost Kitchen for kids. Oh, okay. Yes, All yes, right. Yes, so yes, I was yes. on the tell porch. Tell me the story of the I'm raven. out here on the porch, and I'm with the kids, and a bird lands next to us, and the porch is elevated in the trees here at the lake. And I was like, oh, my God, this is everything I've ever dreamed. So I run out of the house, and I bring a piece of watermelon and an eggshell that was on the counter, and I put them down like an offering, like, here you are. So it started this whole day-long dialogue with this raven where he'd get really close and then back away. And then eventually he, I gave him a piece of feather that I'd found, and he'd let me stroke his fur, and he'd yell at me a little. And then he jumped on me, and I swear. So if you look at the video, oh, my gosh, I actually see. Some serious it. cussing, and because when he jumped on me, I I was like, oh my god. So anyway, yeah, That's scary. So that blew <laughs> up. Frightening. That made thing. me famous, my raven. So the yeah. Raven. So she caught a raven. Do you still have? The no, raven? he never came back. <laughs> it's really upsetting. It's rude. It was a once in a lifetime thing. You, it wouldn't be as special if he came back. I'm just gonna call him out. Additionally, Joyce was selected to have a dinner, a meal. Right? I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like an experience dinner, yeah. at the Lost Kitchen, yeah. which if you haven't watched it, it's on the Magnolia Network. If you haven't watched Erin French or consumed any of her content, then you're just missing out. Yeah, I found the Lost Kitchen, the show that the Magnolia Network put out, I don't know, two years ago, and I binge watched the first season and the same with the second season. And this, this, it's basically, she's 
she's beautiful with a team of all females. None of them have like um, culinary experience aside from working in the kitchen, and yet they put out these incredible meals. Erin has no culinary experience. She never went to culinary school. That's okay. what I'll say. Her dad, I think, owned a restaurant, so okay. she grew up in that industry. But there's no like formal training behind this like incredible food that it looks. I don't know. I haven't experienced it. And so the restaurant, you can only make a reservation by sending in a postcard. And that was like a thing before it was even cool. And now it's cool because everyone knows about it because it was on the Magnolia Network. But um, yeah, Joyce, tell us about your experience submitting a um, postcard and then actually dining at the Lost Kitchen. Well, I knew about it because my husband's a super foodie. And I also knew about it because I used to live um, not far from there. I lived out on Monhegan Island up the coast and she's just inland in freedom and uh so i knew she was and she had an airstream so she was on my radar i'm like this is cool so jeffrey's oh, like yeah. let's put in postcards and we did it just before the pandemic before she became famous for the show and we you send them in and then I, I forgot where i was i was sitting in a parking lot somewhere and the phone rang and it was like hi this is aaron french from lost kitchen and i yelled into the phone shut up like <laughs> Like, she, she I bet she gets that a lot. She laughs. I bet she gets And she's that like, how many people you're allowed to bring six? I'm like, oh, I, will t- I only brought four. But I, I should have brought my kids. I think they would have been, they're wonderful little diners and very polite and they appreciate good food. So I got my two friends, a district attorney from up Maine and another friend of Jeff's. And we, we met up there and it was like summer camp for grownups who like to eat. It was just starlight and magical. And you walk over this bridge with a waterfall and it's all dirt roads. And the village itself is like four buildings. And that includes the Grange Hall and the post office. Like, and there's Aaron and all the girls are wearing just like, it's exactly like the show. Except exactly. It's exactly like the show, except back then they didn't have the outbuildings that they had built since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You you sit at this long table and they literally bring you, um, like 12 courses total. Wow. Yeah. Did you eat the snack plate? Cause that's the thing that I'm always like, that looks incredible. I mean, what is that called? About? It's not called the snack plate. Nibble. It's the nibble tray. Nibble. nibble tray. Yes. I went so far as to find the source and I will email you the nibble tray where it's made, where you can buy it. <gasps> I think she actually has a, I think she like retails them yeah. on her site for a lot i want i want one because when we <laughs> w- yeah for a lot of money because when we will you send that to me because we've talked about doing like pop-up dinner things and i was like i want to do a nibble tray like aaron french does i think that's so cool did you have a standout dish that you ate when you were there yeah the marrow oh, bone on the nibble tray the marrow bone mm, the marrow bone butter yeah. that you just we need to do that yeah, and the squash blossom that's stuffed. That's so savory. I didn't think I was going to like that. And I don't eat seafood as a New Englander. I know that's weird. But um, she brought me alternatives, and the stuff she brought me was just in- incredible. Oh, and they had a lavender soda. I don't drink alcohol, and not for any particular reason. It just mm-hmm. doesn't suit me. Um, my husband loves a good bottle of wine, so we're a mixed marriage. And she would bring me these <laughs> these lavender sodas that were just sparkly, made with fresh lavender juice. Wow. So good, you guys. Her, her, and it's all perception, right? Because I don't actually know her. But I'm going to say her attention to detail and hospitality is like few in the world. And I think that's what attracts so many people to the Lost Mm -hmm. Kitchen is like she makes people feel good in the moment that they're in right there. And it's like that's a skill and a gift. I think that's cool. It's quite the experience. Yeah, If you haven't, you know, 
talking to the audience at this point. If you haven't seen The Lost Kitchen and you have no idea what we're talking about, Sorry. I have good news. <laughs> There's a show you can watch. It's yeah. called The Lost Kitchen. You can go watch it or YouTube <laughs> it. I don't know. But anyways, that's cool. Uh, before we hopped on, you were sharing because I was like, oh, Maine, the only thing I know in there is I want to travel back and I think it'd be cool to go there. Um, eat some awesome lobsters. So. You guys put in your hey, postcards a- this year, please. We'll do it. Okay. Now, that was a tangent. I'll do it. And we like those, but that was. And so coming back to this now, find Joyce again on Instagram at coldbegone. TikTok, Buzzagogo. You can find her website to, to find these products. And that's at coldbegone.com. Again, B spelled with two E's. Um, anything else, Joyce? Uh, before we let you go, this, 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 this is great. Mm-hmm. What, a, what an atomic conversation. But is there a- a- anything else uh, that you'd, you'd love to share? Any parting words, any parting wisdom? I would just say, you know, take care of your nose so it can take care of you. It's more important than you think. Mm. And it's okay for kids yeah. to stick their fingers up there because they're just seeding their gardens. It's fine. Use your Colby gone. It'll be okay. But I, I also wanted to thank you guys for the opportunity and the platform. Um, I think we all know that it's getting increasingly difficult to be a natural family in the United States. Mm. And to speak on something that, I mean, we think of entrepreneurialism and inventing products and pulling yourself by your bootstraps and coming up with good innovative ideas as an American thing and an American dream in the way. And that's becoming harder and harder. So when you guys give people like me an opportunity to be myself and talk about it genuinely, I mm-hmm. could not be more grateful and appreciative to you both, your leaders in our community, and I'm going to be watching you. well this has been a pleasure i you know i walk away from recording podcasts and sorry you'll probably need a nap because it's one of the most like fulfilling things but it's also kind of exhausting but i love the conversations where i walk away and i just feel so filled up i think your story particularly is inspiring and educational and Mm. i feel filled up right now so thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this has been awesome thank you thank you so much joyce and uh, i'm sure we'll be we'll be talking okay well thank you both we'll talk soon i can't see you anymore so thank you oh shoot okay (laughs) Okay, bye. bye and with that joyce with Buzzagogo has left the virtual chat. Mm-hmm. Um, holy smokes! What a great episode! Spectacular. I knew I knew that after Joyce and I spoke on the phone earlier this week, I was like, "Man, we have to share your story because it's it's multifaceted, right?" She's a homeschooling mother. She's an adoptive mother. She's a wellness minded mother. She's mm-hmm. um, someone who has lived experience in seeing how environments can impact our epigenetics and so she's has passion around mm-hmm. what we put in and around our bodies and our homes and our environments she's married to probably the most perfect fit i could ever think for her i mean an environmental attorney and a it software engineer it out. yeah yeah i mean like the fda comes knocking on your door three days a week and you're like i have binders like i'm ready I'm like ready it's just, rock and roll. yeah so perfect so yeah. i just i thought we need to share her story And even just hearing about how she grew up, because I didn't get any of that context when we initially chatted Mm -hmm. on the phone. I just think that's interesting because food plays a massive role in the way we think about ourselves, our bodies as healing mechanisms, the way we Mm -hmm. view everything. And so I love that she sort of circled back to that at the end. And she's like, I'm going to pursue health for my own body because I'm doing all these other things and 
classic moms, right? We pour into our kids, but I, I, I applaud her on that journey. I'm so excited for her. And I, I hope that she feels uplifted by our convo. Oh my gosh. And she's killing it. I mean, like, yeah, like, I, like she needs our affirmation in any way. Oh, I know. I felt honored to have her on Oh here. my gosh. Yeah. She's like a dominant force just out here getting some, like they're flying her banner around at the Red Sox. <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, she, I'm going to go home and like, you know, try to cook up some food for my kids and then, you know, maybe shoot my bow. So like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, any, any particular takeaways from that conversation? I mean, just for me personally, I probably need this stuff I for my sinuses. I, you know, I, I, the amount of issues that I have, even just trying to sleep at night with, with congestion. And I mean, it's to the point where basically I lay down to go to bed and I'm like, man, like, it's like my sinuses are all kind of like stuffed up. Like it's not like this. I don't have to blow my nose. It's mm-hmm. just, I have a harder time breathing. It's like what she was saying, that non-productive exactly. congestion. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in, I'm definitely going to give it a, give it a whirl and, and, and try it out. I, I, I can't imagine um, how many other people like me there are yeah. out there, right? So uh, that's that's my main main kind of takeaway. You know, I, I think I, I mean I learned some new things. Uh, I, I loved our discussion around kind of this generational focus mm-hmm. and how the priorities of the of the climate can influence someone. So the the, the depression era hyper fixed people's attention on nutrition mm-hmm. because they on, ha- on sustenance I Sust- would say. they had they had to, they had to be they, they want they need to stay alive right i mean right. Like, that's kind of intense but like people need to eat food you weren't just eating a bag of potato chips just to curb your craving you were spending extra time to figure out how to be well fed right whereas nowadays it's it's so often that we're in a situation where we're thinking to ourselves, well, you know, I just don't have the money for that. And it's like, well, there was a lot of people for years that also didn't, and they, they made it work and how they make it work. Well, they, they kind of infuse some time into it. And I know we've had this discussion before, but the, the time versus money kind of comparison is, is always, I think is always relevant. So that was, that was another thing that I, that I really enjoyed. I mean, I, I could just keep going. Right. I love that, that her, their children's you know, camper, Camper and Luna, that, I mean, it's super cool. Camper Lamb and Luna Wu, mm-hmm. and um, the inspiration name. that they had in her life and her kind of real—I'm going to call it her real food, her wellness journey—and then ultimately to start a business that's that's successful. And you know, she's you know, I mean, that's it's pretty awesome, mm-hmm. pretty awesome stuff. How can you not like Joyce? I know, and I think you bringing up the generation influence i'm even thinking like okay what let's think ahead right what are our kids going to be Mm. what's going to be their generational influence well i can already tell you that covid is going to be a part of that right Mm. something along the the lines of how we view health in our Mm. bodies but also it is that mentality of like i can't afford to eat healthy food if you would have said that to someone like if you would have looked at my grandpa and said that he would have been like what are you talking about what distraction in your life is causing you to distort your priority to say i can't afford to nourish myself well but i can afford to xyz mm-hmm. and it's not like we don't empathize and it's not like we have endless resources either it's not about that and that's why <clears throat> i really liked our time versus money conversation because we broke down what that looks like mm-hmm. and i want to make sure that our kids 
even if they're growing up in a generation that values convenience, that fears their own body, that, you know, has confusing messaging around, you know, food and where it comes from. I want to make sure that we have some influence over that. And what did we name that? What was that podcast where we talked about that? I think it's literally titled Time Vs. Money, the True, uh, the True Cost of Nourishment. Got it. I uh, believe. If you haven't heard that one, you know, you can go into more detail by listening to that. Yeah, there's like a full that. matrix we break down. But I just think that's interesting as parents to, to consider like, wow, we can always look back to these um, really monumental time stamps, mm-hmm. right? The Great Depression, mm-hmm. era, a war era, um, a time, maybe even in like a specific family, like you can dial down and say like, oh yeah, when grandma was XYZ, like widowed is a great example of like big life changes. All of those things can be external factors. How can we be preemptively helping them overcome some of the things that maybe aren't accurate, right? And I can I can throw out a little curveball as well in the in the in the way that climates change, right? I'm mm-hmm. saying climates, contexts, uh, no, world norms, culture, whatever you want to call it, societal, so, yeah, yeah, whatever. Businesses, corporations, whatever, they're creating things based off of demand, yeah. Or what they believe is the next trend. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to go build. They're not going to go create a new food item based off of a societal norm that is not going to take off. Right. It won't be supported by they're it. They're not necessarily. And, and, and then once they do that, they, they want to now support said projection and idea. So it's in a, in a way it kind of starts with us yeah, right? and what we're looking for. And so... When the convenience boom, I'm going to call it, mm. happened, mm-hmm. Crisco, TV dinners, you know, why was that? Well, you know, mother, motherhood's hard and they were making all the financial decisions for household items, likely. And whenever they were doing research sessions and studying and talking to these people, more often than not, I would almost guarantee you, they would say things like, well, cooking dinner takes up a lot of my time and, and you know, I just want to take care of my kids and you know, this, that and the other. And I, I would love to just spend more time doing this and working on myself. And 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 then these corporations were like, well, hey, how do we save them time and make more money? Mm-hmm. That's that's the that's they, they were listening to their consumer, like likely, and they wanted to make more money. And um, so, you know, as we're looking, this is kind of a really roundabout way of talking about the question that you had. Was like, what, what are our kids? What's their kind of situation going to look like? And, you know, it might be, so you said COVID. I don't know. Honestly, my guess is COVID is going to get buried here soon. Mm. And we're not going to be talking about it anytime soon. That's my guess. Yeah. It's going to get buried and there's going to be something else. Now, I think the underlying root of that, right, of what co- like what COVID kind of was, right? COVID was just a, and, and the divide that we saw, all the craziness that we saw with that. Yeah, that's a symptom. It's a symptom of something deeper. Yeah. And, you know, I think... I don't know. I, I don't know what it is, but it's it's it, it might have to do with this the, the radical shaking up that we're seeing politically that 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 that, that um, has some kind of impact in the way that food is done soon. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much Impossible Burger stuff go on, right? Yeah, it's almost it's kind of almost getting to this place where it's like a political stance, right? It's not, but like it's kind of getting there with with food almost, and. 
Well, I, w- I would argue and say it absolutely is. Okay. Like, yeah. If you put yourself in the environmentalist category, which then puts you on a certain side of the party, which then puts you in ultimately I'm vegan. It's like when I hear someone says, say like, hey, I'm, I care a lot about the environment. Well, that can have two very different mm. outcomes. And I actually have a post on that that's like, hey, two people caring a lot about the environment. One goes vegan, plant-based. <clears throat> one goes regenerative ag. Yeah. So... Yeah, and... and- and, it's complicated. And we don't want that. No. I don't want that. I don't want there to be... It was so funny because even Joyce was talking about when they were trying to bring their daughter, I think it was Camper, home from Vietnam. And, and she was like, everyone everyone united and got together and we made this thing happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, man, I guess I guess something to really ponder as, as leaders and people that are trying to make the world a better place is that... I mean, even hearing you say, like, well, there's a regenerative approach and there's the vegan or whatever approach, right? The the synthetic, I'm going to call it synthetic approach, which that sounds kind of abrasive. Just the other approach, whatever, whatever we're going to call it. Um, that sounds divisive a little bit, kind of. And, like, I don't want that to be a thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be on, I don't want to be leading the charge on a divisive side. Mm-hmm. But yet I do believe in our side. Mm-hmm. I, uh, side. I do believe in, in the things that we're doing. And so, man... Yeah, how can you come around? Yeah. How can we find an issue that is so powerful? Yeah, that it brings people together. And it's almost like that's another conversation of like, was COVID not powerful enough to unite people and instead it ended up dividing people? I don't know. I don't know what's there. Yeah. But the point is for us to look at our kids' what you call atmosphere, Mm. whatever. Culture, climate. Yeah. I, I just think that's an interesting topic. So that's exactly why we have these conversations, right? Totally. We're trying to, I want, I want every mom out there to listen to Joyce and feel equipped and yeah. prepared. If you don't buy what she's selling, fine, but take some inspiration on yeah. what she's doing. Yeah. She's doing some awesome stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm definitely gonna go on their website here soon and, and get some for myself. Yeah. And that's, uh, she generously offered, um, a discount code, which is homegrown30. So grab that. Yeah. Uh, if you're using, if you're going to purchase her cold be gone, make sure you're using that discount code. Uh, we don't get a kickback for that. At no, all, which, this is, it's just her being generous and sharing. She's just awesome. So sharing with the audience, um, go, go get some, go get some cold be gone. Go get some buzz. Go, go check her out on Instagram. Again, that's cold be gone with two E's be gone on Instagram. You can find her TikTok buzz, a go, go see her catch that Raven. I'm literally going to go watch it. I don't know how to do that if I don't have a TikTok, but I'm going to find find it somehow. I'll find somebody with a TikTok and have them get it for me. Anyways, uh, website to find her products, but also to learn more about what she's up to, coldbegone.com or buzzagogo.com. Anything else there? No, you know, I think I love that we had today's conversation because our mission's so aligned. Mm -hmm. And even what she said, you know, was so sweet about if she had the homegrown curriculum before when she was homeschooling, like she would use that. I love that. And I was honestly surprised when I went to write it that nothing existed. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what it's there for. Like that is this whole conversation about our kids and the food and we just want to equip families at the end of the day. So if you haven't checked out the homegrown resources, you can find that all at homegrown dot homegrown education.org. Um, because education is the reason why we're doing this, right? We believe that education is the kind of like golden ticket to food freedom. Mm-hmm. So 
food education, if you understand, if you learn more, if you're listening to people like Joyce, if you're if you're reading, if you were getting some understanding of macro you know nutrients, if you're learning about that kind of stuff, and you know where your food came from, if you're reaching out to your uh, what's a what's beekeeper apiary, yeah, ape, yeah. Um, it, here's a great example of that, right? And this is what we mean by food freedom. It's like okay, so she used that one honey that was basically laced with um, corn syrup. She didn't know it at the time, and that caused her to have a reaction. Well, imagine if you didn't understand the sourcing nuance that is with honey, and you ate honey, and it gave you a headache. Mm -hmm. And then you now say, I cannot have honey. I'm Mm -hmm. allergic to that. How many foods are like that? How many foods are like that? I can't have dairy. I can't have wheat. But what if we... I can't do gluten. I can't do dairy. I can't do... And what if we put education behind that? And what if we can equip people? And, you know, someone asked me recently, what's your favorite part of this being on this journey because it's a journey it's never ending and i said it's the food freedom and the people like i love connecting with people and i love that i can i don't have any dietary restrictions i have health i have food standards and the quality that i want to consume but i'm not you know on the free diet the gluten-free the soy-free the anything you know i can i trust my body enough i nourish it enough and i can understand food at a certain level so yeah if, if that's you and you want to get on that path with us um obviously like we love that this community is growing i think that's great so we have a mission here to educate equip and inspire people towards that food freedom realm mm-hmm. and some of the ways that we do that is through books resources and things that we sell again homegrowneducation.org we've got uh, coloring books that just we just dropped a coloring book go get some coloring books featuring some awesome farms around the area that's right we did just drop the we coloring just dropped book. the coloring book see i forgot to I even talk about this that stuff here you're lucky i'm here anyways go get go get yourself your kids get get some coloring books they're like 10 bucks go get some 9.99 for a physical copy and you know i basically um, worked with my illustrator who I used in the in a previous resource. She did a wonderful job. And I, I can't remember if it was her idea or my idea or what. But we were like, hey, what if we could feature some folks around the country who are just growing food with integrity, right? And so I had some of my mm. um, like favorite farms on there, like Polyface and Pasture Bird and Jill Winger's Homestead and Bailey Von Tossel's, you know, Gardenscape because I wanted... <clears throat> to represent people I love, but then I wanted to represent a bunch of them. So there's Mm -hmm. 16 different features in the coloring book. Every feature has like a story page with the actual photo that we took, that they provided from the farm. And then that's the photo that we converted into a coloring page. Mm. So kids can see that photo in real life, like that actual bunch of wildflowers or that actual, um, chicken, um, I don't know that they call it a chicken coop, a pasture bird, but we'll have to ask Paul when he's on soon. Mm -hmm. But um, they can see that and they can color. It's both educational, but it's like, hey, this is a real life example of food. It's not screaming in your face like, hey, you have to, you know, do X, Y, Z. It's just a subtle way to infuse some purposeful media. And um, yeah, so we just launched a coloring book. We're super excited. You can get that online for nine ninety nine per copy. We kept it very cheap because we're we know it's a coloring book. It's consumable. People have multiple kids. We didn't want to make it. The, yeah, we put a ton of time and energy and invested in the. But we want you to use it as a coloring the book. The artwork. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not a, a display home. item. It's a get your kids after. It. Yeah. Yep. Um, we've also got a real food guide on there. It's 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 a easy, quick way to get yourself in the game on sourcing to understanding macronutrients to um you know good foods that you can 
have in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. We've got what's for dinner. This is this is an equipping item that's hey, this this helps create rhythms. This is this is a this is a book that helps create a rhythm in your life of making those good meals that Joyce's grandmother was making. Mm-hmm. So so you know, if you didn't grow up in the depression, one of the ways you can invest in creating some rhythms and routines is through a six-week meal plan mm-hmm. with grocery lists and recipes. I, I mean, it, it, it's definitely not as hard as being in the depression, I wouldn't guess, but it's, it's going to help establish some of those standards and some of those rhythms. We've also got curriculum, homeschool curriculum that Joyce was talking about. It's for kids anywhere from you know preschool to sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got them on there. Go get, go get, go get some curriculum while they, while they, while they last. We're, we've been stocking books up and, um, we'll, we'll keep stocking them up because we want to get them in your hands. So if this rambling conversation as we've ended this podcast wasn't enough, Elizabeth and Joey, you can also find us on the webs, the, the apps. Um, you can find Elizabeth at homegrown underscore education and you can find me at joey hazelmeyer and maybe someday you can find us on tiktok but right now you cannot (laughs) i don't know and until next time that's a wrap